This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show veteran police officer, SWAT team member, an expert on use of force, Chuck DiChiara. Now, in this incredible and extremely pertinent conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from his personal journey into law enforcement, joining special operations teams, grappling within law enforcement, recruiting, compassionate policing, some unsung heroes in high-profile cases, school safety, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now, so all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Chuck DiChiara. Enjoy. Well, Chuck, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to George for connecting us, connecting you with yet another great human being, and I want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. So thank you for coming on. Uh, Thank you very much. I appreciate the uh, privilege and opportunity. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So I am um, just up in Massachusetts, just uh, northwest of the city of Boston. All right. By your accent, I'm guessing you've probably been there a long time. So let's start your the, your kind of origin story, as it were. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. 
Okay, let's see. I was um. So the accent's pretty bad, but I'm going to give you a quick history lesson first, which is the, the Pilgrims landed at a place called Plymouth Rock, which is in Massachusetts. So my version of the Queen's English is perfect, and everybody else has the accent. I've been told <laughs> I talk too. I've been told I talk too fast, and the accent is too thick. But um, since the Pilgrims landed here, I think I got it okay. But um, yeah, I was born uh, place uh, Stoneham, Massachusetts, which is just north of Boston. Um, and I grew up, parents uh, had four or three brothers. Uh, one passed away when we were younger. So basically, my parents were really young, got divorced young. So we, I think by the time my father, I think by the time my parents were 23 years old, they had four boys. So they had a pretty, pretty full household. And they, um, they get divorced when we were pretty young. So um, decent relationship with both, but kind of the product of uh, divorced parents right around the metro Boston area. How old were you when you lost your brother? I believe I was about seven years old. Oh, God. I'm so sorry to hear that. All right. So what about uh, professions? What were your parents doing? So my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and my father was a blue-collar guy. You know, he was um, bouncing around, did our jobs, insurance, and drove a truck and, you know, ran around a couple different jobs. He's more just a blue-collar guy, got his lunch pill and, and went to work. And what about your exposure to law enforcement? Were you one of many guests who actually were on the other side of it at first when you were younger? Or would you, you know, did you have people and mentors in your life that kept you on the straight and narrow early? So I kind of had a mixture of both, I guess, growing up, both sides of the fence. So I probably, I probably was one of those kids that could have gone either way. I think playing football probably got me from being a, an angry, divorced kid to uh into into contact sports and everything else but i think that at the time um probably combination of both but i had an uncle my uncle who's my godfather he was a he was a cop city cop and he made it to detective captain so he was a he was a real good mentor to me uh, my father passed away young so my my uncle kind of stepped in with a lot of stuff so i would say my uncle uh, mike dechar was the biggest influence on me becoming a cop and how old were you when you lost your dad I was probably I was probably thirty, so I wasn't too old. But he was he was such a young guy because he had us young. So my father was probably fifty two when he passed away. So my uh, my uncle stepped in for a lot of stuff. So you mentioned about playing football. Talk to me about the sports and athletics that you were doing during the school age. So football was my really first sport. You know, like any kid, football, baseball, street hockey. But football was really my first love. At the time, you couldn't play until you were maybe the fourth or the fifth grade. And I took, I was a smaller kid, shorter kid, kind of on the small side. And then I met a football coach by the name of Joe Walsh. And I think he kind of, at the time I was probably one of those angry kids getting into a lot of fights at school almost constantly. We moved from a city to a smaller town. And in the city, all the kids fought all the time. It was just kind of a rite of passage. Then we moved to a, a nicer town where the kids didn't really fight. <laughs> So we, we kind of, me and my brothers kind of made a name for ourselves pretty fast for getting into fights and that type of stuff. But, you know, I met, I met uh, coach Joe Walsh at a young age and I just immediately fell to football. It was a lot of contact, a lot of hitting. I was able to get out a lot of frustration. The team camaraderie was right off the bat. It was something I really loved uh, getting into the football end of it. And then it was just from there, it was all sports, but we grew up in an area where it was a housing complex. So the same kids played football, baseball, hockey, basketball, and whatever the season was. Uh, back in the day, we got 
when we woke up, we got thrown out to this mystical, magical place called outside. And every kid got thrown outside. You didn't get to stay inside. You were thrown outside. We had the same time to come home, which is when the streetlights came on. And, you know, we, we, we just played sports all day long and did all the, all the kids stuff that I wish they, I wish they did now. But uh, I, I think, uh, I think some things were simple back in the day, but we had a pretty good group in the housing complex because all the kids, you know, if you were the catcher in baseball, then, you know, you were the center in football, you were the goalie in street hockey. If you played shortstop, you were the, you know, shortstop pitcher and just kind of the way it went. You were the quarterback in baseball. So everything kind of lined up. So it was pretty cool. So it seems like a lot of people that grew up in an area where, you know, as you mentioned, they could have gone the good way or the bad way. Um, sometimes, you know, the, the, the family home is, is already intact and a mentor is in addition to that. Sometimes, whether it's a loss of a parent, whether it's a parent being gone a lot, the mentor kind of steps in. Um, uh, what kind of magnitude did Joe feature in you staying on that correct path? He was just a super strict football coach and he just held you, he taught, taught us at a young age just to be accountable. Like you, you know, you didn't walk up to the football field with your cat, with your parents carrying your football equipment, you carried your own stuff. If you were 10 seconds late, you were running laps. You know, if you jumped offside, you ran a lap, but he just, he held each other. He held everybody accountable. And he was a, you know, he was a solid coach, but he was one of those coaches that a lot of times, Coaches want to coach their own kids, and he did, but he never picked his kids for the all-star team. His kids were good athletes, but he never put them, you know, he never made them captain or anything. He always picked other kids that probably needed it. So he was just a, he was just a really good, really good mentor for, for a lot of young kids. Now, what about uh, career-wise? Were you dreaming of law enforcement in school, or was it something else? So I wasn't. I was, believe it or not, in my first year of school, I was a journalism major. I, my whole... My whole life, I was going to be a sports writer and a football and a baseball coach. I actually, so my my major was journalism. I went to Salem State College for my first year, and my minor was actually coaching was a minor. So I was going to coach football and baseball, and and that was going to be it. So that was my plan going ahead, and it just it really just got sidetracked one day, and I I realized my path was totally different. So tell me about that day. What was that pivotal moment? So I was. I, I kind of started to look at the, the the field of sports journalism is it really is it's few and far between. If you didn't go to school like Emerson, like there's only a couple of really good schools to go to. If you want to go work at ESPN, you have to be super cute, handsome, tall, tan, very articulate. And those jobs are very hard to come by. And I, and I wrote for a newspaper for a while and I realized that reporters, even though you get to go to all the games and stuff, they really literally, don't make any money at all. Zero money. And um, I was never looking to get rich, but I just figured that maybe I should look at some other stuff. And to be honest with you, I just took it on a whim. I went down and took the police test. And at the time, it was really hard to get put on. Like you had to have city residents. You had to test really high on the, on the test, even to get looked at. And I really just did it. I was 20 years old. I, I, had, the, I had the Saturday off from school. And I said, you know, I'm going to just go down and take the police test and just see how it goes. And my grades weren't really good in school. I think I really thought I was in school to lift weights and play football and hang around with my friends. So I didn't, I didn't really put much of an effort into school. I thought I was going to play division one football. And then I stopped growing in about the seventh grade. So at five, seven, 
I realized I wasn't going to play pro ball. I go division one. So I didn't really put the effort in in school. So I graduated really near the bottom of my class. But then when I took the police test, I scored a 99, which was really, which was really high at the time. And I ended up like second on the list. And then they, they called me right afterwards. So that's the day I took the test and I aced it. It kind of got me thinking like, wow, I'm not really a, I'm not really a smart kid, but this seemed to come pretty easy for me. So I'm like, maybe, maybe my path has been off a little bit. Now, why, why police though? I mean, you said you went and took the test. What was it about that profession when you weren't exposed to it younger in, in your younger years that drew you into uniform? So I think, I think back in the day more maybe than now, but back in the day, a lot of ex jocks that were really into athletics became cops. Like the captain of the football team, captain of the wrestling team, they all went down and took the police test at one time. That's kind of just the way it went. Either we got people that were really athletic or we got people from the military. That was mostly what police work was, was made up of. So I really missed playing sports in a hurry. It just kind of was over one day. And then I missed the camaraderie. I miss hanging around with the guys and, you know, drink beer, hang around with your friends, you know, talk shit, have a, have a whole bunch of fun, go do, you know, challenge each other physically. So all that stuff from athletics just seemed like it was going to be kind of in that police field. So I kind of got into the field thinking, well, this is kind of like playing sports. I get to do physical stuff. It's different every day. I get to hang around with my friends. And that was kind of the draw in the first. It shifted at, you know, obviously as time went on, but that was my initial draw was, wow, this is kind of like being in the locker room with the guys and having fun and, and going to do cool stuff, you know? When you watch ESPN now and it's an hour of three or four dudes screaming at each other, do you miss sports journalism? I don't. <laughs> I don't really. Because, you know, it's it's almost – I really thought it was honest, but it's really almost like a – it's almost like WWF wrestling now. I'm probably showing my age. But it's almost like WWF wrestling. I feel like it's scripted. I feel like everybody has a role. And now when I listen to it, I'm like, well, that guy's just saying that for this reason. And now – this guy is going to take his role and jump in and he's going to be the, he's playing, we're playing good cop, bad cop over here. And it's, it doesn't seem so genuine anymore. So I'm not really a fan of it. Even talk radio. I'll listen to it on the way to work, but it makes me want to drive my car into to a bridge. <laughs> Cause it seems, it seems very, it seems very fake to me now. I was just getting my hair cut the other day and it's a place called sport clips. So, you know, it's my own fault. It's called sport clips, but the whole time I was getting my hair cut, there was that going on. And I was just thinking, can you just jam those clippers into my throat and I can <laughs> just end this now? Oh, right. It's, it's, it's painful. And it's just people just pick the, you know, one of the guys from the Patriots got arrested for two guns at Logan Airport. And he's a good player, but it's just back and forth and both sides. And of course, they, of course, politics comes into it right away. And then I'm, then I'm totally out because now it just becomes a political issue. I'm like, and, and now I've left the conversation for good now. Well, speaking of that, we're going to get into the the divisive polarization from the media when it comes to policing. When you first stepped in, before we even get to your training in, in, in all that other area, how were the the average police officers received by the community and also via the media when you first entered the profession? So I think it's always gone in spurts, but when I first got into it, I am a big fan of looking professional in uniform. I don't like all these new tack vests and, and, and cops wearing shorts and bicycle shorts and baseball hats. I'm, I'm an old school guy. I like, I like, I like Adam 12, you know, the cop show up in uniform, spit shine, polish, look good. 
And that was kind of how it was when I got on. You just you tried to look good when you came into work. A lot of it was about command presence and how you talk to people. When I got on the police department, it was very limited training. They j- basically just assumed you knew how to talk to people. And the training I got was, man, I, I'll tell you about that. But it was just bare. It was, I was 20 years old. It was bare minimal. But the media was good with us. And they just, it, was a, it, was, it seemed like it was a very well-respected profession. And, you know, you felt good getting in uniform and getting out of the car and talking to people. And the community was really pro-police at the time. And the media seemed pro-police at the time. But again, it's always kind of gone in spurts. It's like one day they hate us, one day they like us. And they like us and they hate us. And I've even seen it change. I've even seen it change in an eight hour shift where something kicks off and they're like, wait a second, we were just high fiving the the neighbors two seconds ago. And now people are anti-police. So it does, it does go in spurts, but definitely when I get on, it seemed like a very more, uh, very well-respected profession. Yeah. I think I saw the same thing when, you know, everyone was holding the line during the beginning of COVID without any PPE in any immunization and then it was literally the click of a fingers and now the police and fire are medics and nurses are selfish murderers for not getting the jab well those selfish murderers were there while you were hiding in your house and now all of a sudden they're demonized i, I mean personally that's my personal opinion i think that's yeah. disgusting yeah it was rough too and we have we have a really good we have a really good relationship at least in this city with the fight department too so we do a ton of training together and you know they kind of go through the same stuff it, it's even now the fight department was always well-respected. I tease a lot of my friends. I'm like the, you know, America's heroes and stuff, but it really is. I think that, I think the two best jobs in this, on this planet is fight department and police department, but it, they, they deal with a lot of the same stuff now. So even that, those guys, things that they had to deal with, everybody loved the firefighter, but you see it, you, you see it in your profession now. I mean, firefighters getting shot at, you know, we're teaching classes now fire as a, as a weapon, because people are starting fires so that they can ambush firefighters. I'm like, man, if we're going to start going after firefighters. We got in medics. We got real problems, you know. Yeah, well, exactly. And you look at the you know the list. I mean, we've had so many people shot at the door. I and mean, this is something that I to this day now I don't wear a uniform. Doesn't matter where I'm going. I still knock on the door from the side with the wall between me because you know you obviously are maybe going into a domestic dispute. We're just going to a medical call, but we have had men and women murdered that are simply answering, you know, a seemingly harmless nine one one response. Yes, sir, and that's it's really on the uptick too. I don't think that's that's changing anytime soon. So. At the front door of your department, talk to me about fitness standards and also the kind of defensive tactics element to your initial training. So initial training, uh, you mean from like the academy on? or from- Yeah, yeah, when you when you first entered the profession. Yeah, so, so when I first got on the police department, it was, there was limited training. You went to a, a basic police academy, but I was young when I went on and you went through maybe 900-hour police academy and it was the basics 40 hours of firearms 40 hours of self-defense defensive tactics you know you had to run every day you know and you had your criminal law so you had your all kind of staples and then you would get out after about a six-month academy then you would get assigned to your police department and they would do what they call field training but back in you know back in 1988 1989 the field training was we didn't have a lot of these tools we didn't have tases and bowler wraps and all these sexy gadgets we just had it was sticks and fists back then so they pretty much gave you keys to the cruiser i think my field training officer i probably rode with him for maybe about three shifts and back then the field training was like a punishment so the guy i rode with and he was he probably wasn't a bad guy but 
he was kicked out of the drug unit. I think he was kicked out of the drug unit for stealing. So, so for punishment, they said, hey, you ride with the fucking new guy. You get the new guy, that's your punishment. So I walk in 20 years old, not really knowing what I was doing, you know? And this guy's like, I ain't riding with the new guy. And they're like, well, you're riding with him. And it's kind of a bad start. You know, the guy doesn't even want to ride with you. So we basically drove around for three nights. Then I rode around with another good guy for two nights. And then they gave me, at 20 years old, they gave me the keys to the police car and said, here's your radio, here's your gun. And, uh, you know, go catch bad guys, stop cars. If we call you on the radio, go go on calls. And that was kind of the training back then. It was pretty, it was really minimum as far as field training. When you look back at your first, let's say, year, were there any calls where that lack of training almost got you killed or, or someone else? I I definitely... I definitely probably viewed the job differently. Like I probably had a little bit of a, a edge to me and I was trying to probably make a name for myself. So I'll be honest with you. One thing, and I'm, I'm not really proud of it, but I probably turned instead of turning something, uh, a, a non-compliant person, I'd be pretty quick. Uh, it would probably turn pretty quick into use of force versus today. It would be totally different. So that the 20 year old me was totally different how I handled calls but yeah, I definitely didn't know what I was doing. I can think of my my first arrest. It was up on Route 114, and I was all excited. My first big pinch, and I don't even think it was anything big. I think it was a stolen license plate or a stolen car or something. No big deal. So I arrest a guy. My heart was pounding. My palms were sweaty. I think I barely got the handcuffs on him, and I I put him in the back of the cruiser, and I locked the door. I'm like, this this guy's not getting away from me. And I locked the door, and then I closed the door, and the keys were still running, and the the cruiser was running. He was in it. He was laughing at me at the backseat. And <laughs> then I had to come on the radio and call the station. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I locked myself out of my police car. And the bad guy's in the car and he's laughing at me. And it was about 15 minutes before somebody got to me. So that was my first big pinch is I, I locked myself out of the car. So I really, I probably was a shit show my first year on the job. So I started to kind of figure it out. I think it takes about five years to learn the job anyways, but 20 years old without much life experience. I think I was still living home with my parents. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like I had any idea what I was doing. Now, when did you start the path towards uh, SWAT and special operations side of policing? So that, that was probably the, that was easily the best thing to happen to me because I'll be honest, when I got on the police department, I don't want to say I was disappointed, but I was kind of disappointed because I expected that everybody was going to be going to the gym and working out and, hanging around together. And I really expected this camaraderie and I'll be honest with you. It wasn't there on a day-to-day basis. So I found myself pretty disappointed. I was like, wow, you know, this guy's trying to make detective. That guy's on the sergeant's list. This group of guys doesn't like that group of guys. And all this stuff you heard about the brotherhood and the thin blue line, like it was bullshit. It was not, it just wasn't true. It really, everybody was kind of, you had a click that you had to join. You're either a malcontent or you're a golden boy. And it was, it was different, you know? And then I was only on about a year and I, we had a SWAT call in the, in the city I was working in the town I was working in. And it was a really good one. It was a, it was a barricaded person with a gun and uh, it was extended call out. And I was there and I remember watching this, all the SWAT guys roll up. And at the time there were a lot of, a lot of them were mostly Vietnam vets. And those guys, to me, were the best cops in the, in the city. They were, they did just, they treated everybody with love and respect until you brought violence to it. And then they handled it. You know, they were really good cops. And I watched them on this call and I was like, that's it for me. That's like, that's, that's what I want to do. And I pretty much made my mind up that night that 
at the time I was like, well, maybe I'll get into the police athletic league and coaching. And once I was out with those guys, it was instantly drawn. I'm like, I'm going to, I wasn't a great shot when I got in the police department because I didn't have much time on the gun. So I'm like, all right, how am I going to pull this off? And I, I'll be honest with you. I, I grabbed the case of ammo and I shot constantly and I trained and I'm like, I'm, I got to get on the SWAT team. That's going to be my one goal. So it was really just that call out watching those guys and the professionalism and the, and the restraint and the way they went about their business. It was, and it was just exactly what I was looking for. Well, even though we're not deep in this conversation yet, that glimpse that you had at that time reminds me of, of a phrase that, you know, people use, and I think it's, it's spot on, you know, walk softly, but carry a big stick and having that training and that physicality in your back pocket. And it's almost a deterrent so that you can deescalate with your words and with sometimes with your kindness and compassion, unless like you said, a line is crossed and then you switch from one mode to the other. So what was it that you're seeing when these men and what was it that gave them this, the confidence and the, the, the strength to be kind and compassionate? It, it was almost like they had this, and maybe it was from some of their time in Vietnam, but they had this reverence to human life that I just found was, was like riveting for me. They just, they, you know, priority of life, they cared about innocent people and they cared about protecting each other, but they also, they also had a care and compassion for the subject or suspect they were dealing with. But it wasn't like you would see on TV with oh, SWAT shows up and they're going to be crashing and banging. Like they try to preserve life. So I always heard protect and serve my whole life, you know, Adam 12, protect and serve, but it really is protect and serve and preserve. Preservation of life is really the core component of SWAT. And it was so much, it was so different than what you thought from the movies. Like these guys were there as force mitigation. They were there to figure out how to solve problems and not take a life. And that's, that's really what, that's really what SWAT has been about for me. They, you know, having a plan and it's almost like this confidence that you have when you're working with people that know the job and people that you care about, there's a level of confidence that I think mostly police officers, a lot of times we make decisions based on, I'd say probably 95% of the time it's based on emotion and 5% of the time it's based on logic. And I think when you can breathe and focus and make a plan and, you know, oxygenate that blood and, and get yourself thinking and not just coming up with a plan A, but coming up with a plan A, B, C, and D, the calls just go very well. Everybody is in, everybody's calm. Nothing sets people off. And it really just comes down for, for, for being well-trained and being in good physical shape. And just the way you look at the, the big picture, they, their, their, their stress level seems to be, I don't want to say flatline because your arousal is definitely up, but they have this level of confidence that they're able to see the big picture and not this, 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 internal like small focus they have a big focus on the big picture if that makes sense no it does completely so when you walk in from you know the regular street cop into this new group talk to me about that shift you know that you saw with the the men and women that you were working in that team and then the evolution of your own mindset and skills so we're considered a part-time team so we, we this team i'm on covers like 64 cities and towns so in massachusetts you know, you have you have Boston and you have Worcester, but then you have it's made up of a lot of smaller cities. So we cover we're a multi-jurisdictional team. So we all have jobs within our own police department. So you could be working narcotics or gangs or like in my department, I'm in charge of training. And then I would just go to SWAT when we had call. So we would train together all the time and we would go on on call outs. Uh, but the, the the rotation is really slow. So once you get on the team you start really slow. Like anybody that thinks they're going to be crashing and banging, 
a year on the job. It's just not happening. So I was, I almost didn't get on because I almost blew my interview because I was trying to come off. I knew I was young and they didn't really take guys as young as I did. And I, I had done pretty well in the police Academy. So I kind of brought that in. So I kind of went in there with maybe a little cockiness saying, listen, I graduated first in my academy. I was first in PT. So I wanted the guys to trust me. And I think I probably put my pants on the interview because some of the guys knew me from working with me. But some of the older guys were like, yeah, this kid's this kid's a golden boy and he's an individual. He's not what we're looking for. So they took me. They did take me on. But when you you have to get all votes. So at the time, we had 25 guys on the team. Now we're up to 40, but we only were capped at 25. So you had to get 25 votes out of 25 people. So if two guys didn't like you, you were screwed. So the guy, a couple guys vouched for me and they brought me on, but they brought me on super slow. So I, I drove the van for a couple of years. I, I had every, I took every job, crappy job I could just to get on the team. I became a tear gas guy. Um, then I eventually moved up to the breaching team before I got on the entry team. So it was probably a five-year rotation of training my ass off before they started to trust me on good jobs, which was really good for me because I was able to, I guess, break me down. They really broke down. They really broke me down the ground zero again and built me back up. But I went from being an individual and wanting to do, you know, cool stuff and get commendations and it changed my whole mindset. And I just decided that it was way cooler to be part like a small fish in the big pond. Like I wanted to be part of a team and be the best team that I possibly could. And that's what, that's what those guys did. They took me under their wing. They broke me down and took me on super slow. And I really didn't do anything my first five years on the team before I started getting to do cool shit, you know? Now, what about the culture within the team? Um, you know, there's, there seems to be, especially when I speak to people in your community, a division between a regular police officer and special operations when it comes to the amount of firearms training, fitness standards, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But when, you look from the outside looking in, it doesn't matter if I'm a regular firefighter paramedic or a hazmat tech, we're still going to the same calls. We still should be held to the same standard. So what what did you see as far as the difference between the people within the teams and the culture that you'd kind of just come from as a regular police officer? Yeah, so the culture as a, as a regular police officer, we, you know, the, probably one of the great, I guess, misconceptions is, you know, we always hear, you know, based on training and experience and, and officers are so well trained, but you know, some of the, one of the missing links on this use of force stuff is police officers don't get the training that we probably should. You know, we get very basic, minimal training, you know, to determine a lot of this other stuff is going to be self-motivation. Like a lot of the training you have to seek out on your own, which is a lot of the guys that work tactical did, they would seek out training on their own. But from a line officer, you really get the basics. You don't have to pass a physical fitness test up this way. Um, you just have to, you know, maintain fitness for duty. And that's very, sub that's very subjective. And then the firearms training is you have to pass a qual twice a year. And the qual is a, like, you have to score an 80 out of a hundred. And I could probably take a 17 year old kid off the street that's never picked up a gun and, and train him for an hour. And he could shoot an 80. Like, it's just, it's all combat shooting from in close. So, and you only have to shoot twice a year. So they don't hold you to a super high standard. They don't hold us to a super high physical fitness standard. Your in-service training, every officer has to get 40 hours of in-service training a year. But the training is, it's pretty minimal. It's for, you know, you got to get CPR training, first responder, basic criminal law, 
basic constitutional law, and then they'll pick a topic like, um, you know, hate crimes or dealing with elderly or dealing with psych, psych evals, that type of stuff. But it's only a 40 hour class. And then everything else is really on your own. So to maintain certification as a police officer, the standard's not super high. But then, you know, you, if you're if you're assigned to a specialized unit like SWAT, training is every Wednesday. We have to shoot 100 instead of an 80. And you really held you really held accountable. Like if you're if your attendance isn't good, you're going to get called out. If you don't shoot 100, you're going to come back next month and try to shoot 100. But it doesn't matter if you're the most highly decorated guy on the team. If you don't hit the standard, you're out. And we have to pass a yearly physical fitness standard. And it's not super high. It's not Navy SEAL difficult, but you certainly have to maintain a level of proficiency physical fitness wise. And, you know, you have to turn in your personnel file to make sure you're not calling in sick or you're not going out with injuries and stuff. So it's really two different worlds. But again, when you go to your own, when you're going on calls, you're going on calls that have, you could be going on a call with a guy that's got all kinds of training and experience and real world experience. And you could be going on a, a call with a guy that, you know, watch Netflix for eight hours and barely answers his radio. It's just the way it goes. How is that received within the SWAT community, the the kind of polarizing standards in the regular community? Because, again, I talk about this a lot. It doesn't matter which one of us is called. At some point, a firefighter is going to be called to climb 20, 30 stories with 100 pounds of gear and then, you know, make entry and do a search and pull someone out, maybe have to extricate them all the way down again. A huge, huge, you know, um, level of exertion, level of fitness, level of strength. And it doesn't matter if you're special ops or, you know, paramedic or EMT. If you are wearing a firefighter badge, you might be one of those people that's called. So for me, the opposition of fitness standards in first responder communities is absolute insanity now you are held to a standard in SWAT how is that perceived that they're not outside of SWAT well it's difficult because we're all you know we're all friends we're all brothers we work together but you know you're always wishing cops they say cops hate change and they say the same thing for firefighters right Cop, cops hate change and they hate the way they are they hate they hate they, they hate change but they hate the way things are so that's kind of true but it's it's I guess it's true because we're comfortable. We're comfortable with the status quo to a point. Sometimes, you know, that people get nervous with change, but then on the flip side of it, we always think things could be better. And I think that's where we're at is we have to hold each other accountable and make things better. Like with the, we're all going on the same type of calls. Um, there's some phenomenal patrolmen out there that go on the same type of calls. And you know, if we have time, I'm going to talk about some of the high profile incidents that we've been on that the SWAT team got all the accolades and it was the guys in patrol, just the line patrol guys that did unbelievable police work. So, and those guys step up time and time again, but overall we just probably need to increase the standards and, and get everybody on, on the same page because we've been trying to SWAT's kind of a weird thing because at the time when it started, it was, you know, when Daryl Gates started the SWAT teams from LAPD you know, in, in the late sixties, it was for specialized type calls. And now it's kind of gone back where we're saying, listen, all this specialized training, it needs to be in patrol as well. Like how to handle active shooter, how to handle suicidal barricades, how to search a building. So it, at the time when SWAT developed, it was to handle these specialized calls. So now guys on SWAT teams are saying, listen, 
we need to take all these tactics and teach them to patrol. That doesn't mean everybody in patrol has to be a, a tactical guy, but all these lessons learned and having a plan A and a plan B and a plan C and de-escalation and force mitigation, these are all things that we need to get into patrol as well as increase the physical fitness standard, increase the firearm standard. And again, it really is about raising the standard versus lowering the standard. The problem is now with some of the police reform stuff is we seem to be lowering the standard and it's, it's frustrating for a lot of us that really care about this profession. Cause we're like, man, we're lowering the standard. This is not the time. This is the time we have to train everybody up and use this as a, as an example to, you know, taking some good things about police reform and realizing we need to up our game rather than lessen it. Well, I, I want to kind of tangent on what you said, but just before I do just make sure I don't forget as far as the uh, SWAT medics in your department, are those police officers or are they from the fire side? So they're from the fire side. We've, we've experimented a couple times with different ones. We, now we just have our own medics. So we've, we've put them in the tactical environment more than we used to, like dropping them into warm zones and stuff. But when I first got on, we tried to use police officers and it, it just didn't really work out because they weren't SWAT officers. They were police officers that were medics and they were good, but they weren't really mission specific. So you'd be, you'd be calling for a medic and they'd be out there arguing with somebody in the street or we'd be like medic. And then they'd be out there, you know, arresting somebody for trespassing. We're like, no, we, we need the medic. So that didn't really work out so well. And then we, we switched to using firefighters and medics. And it seems to, it seemed to be, it seems to be working out much better for us now having predetermined medics. So there's a spectrum of dynamics within that relationship from the firefighter medic that actually goes through law police academy and and is carrying all the way through to i mean basically they're in the the cold zone so a long way away and really not not equipped so just just there as an extra kind of med box to respond if needed and then everything in between of all the different dynamics that you've been exposed to what is your favorite kind of um role for that firefighter medic to be in so I love the I love the integrated response. We've been we've really been starting to uh, we got a big uh, grant up here in Massachusetts to really get the police and firefighters training together, which I'm which I'm a huge fan. That active integrated response I like, and you know we'll do th- we'll do things one way for a while. Like this works pretty good, but then something pops, and as long as you have no ego in this business and you say like, hey, this is a better way. So we've really changed. It's not the Columbine, obviously, and then it's changed for us over the years, but with the firefighters and and medics now, even in the last year, we changed, we would always go, you know, we'd always go, the police officers go down range when it's a, when it's a cold zone, we'll, we'll start to bring in our firefighters and medics, but we don't do that now. Now, now what we'll do is, and I love it this way. I think it's, it took me a minute because I was always, you know, the first couple officers in the building are going to be the contact team. They're going to try to make contact with the threat. And then, you know, I was always taught we're going to be stepping over people. You know, it's not a rescue mission. You need to go down range and, and, and stop the killing and stop the bad guy. So it seemed to work, but now we're really teaching if we get into a building and there's no driving force and we have victims down, we're going to start to save lives. then. so it's going to go, you know, stop the killing, stop the bleeding and then rescue. And that's really what we're pushing now. So if we, if we clear into a building, and we don't have a driving force and we don't have gunfire or a reason driving us ahead, then we're going to post and start to tie tourniquets and get the firefighters and medics into that warm zone and 
it took a minute to get everybody to buy into it. And I totally get it. I, I have firefighter friends that were like, F that. I didn't sign up for this. But when you put it in context and say, listen, if this was your if this was your son or your daughter, would you want everybody looking for the bad guy or do you want them trying to save lives here? And we really switch gears with it. And I love the way we're doing it now. I just think it, it makes a ton of sense to me. And when you look at some of the data in some of these active shooter events, we're almost chasing ghosts. Like everybody's looking for a bad guy, Maybe whether he got out or he escaped or he's on a different floor and we're letting people bleed. And it makes sense to me that if we can start tying tourniquets and stop the bleeding, then we should be doing that. So that's kind of what we switch to. And that's what we do now. And I think it's, I think it's, it's just way better. It took me a minute to grasp a concept, but I think the data is there that if we can get people, you know, extricated out of there and, and, and save them. That's what we should be doing. And we'll, you know, we're not going to put people in harm's way, but, and then if we're treating people and there's a, there's a change in the condition and we have a reason to push on, then we'll, we'll hold security on the firefighters. We'll net, we'll always leave team members with the firefighters, but we're going to send officers downrange to, to kind of solve the problem. But I kind of like the way we're doing it now. I've had firefighters I've worked with, even just doing what they call the save training, which was the kind of, you know, you, you go with the team, they'd stack on, they'd, they'd be covering front, back and side, and you go in, you know, package a patient and they're not scared, and then you drag them out. And the number of people, and this last department was not exactly a great example of fired up, passionate firefighters anyway, but that would say, this is not in my job description. And I would argue, bullshit. You signed up to save lives. Now you're not running into gunfire like you know that epic scene in Platoon. You're making sure that, as you said, it's it's a it's a warm zone, and you're trusting the other men and women in uniform that are around you. But yeah, it's a dangerous job. And if you you know are gonna just let an elementary school of kids bleed out because you're too much of a pussy to do your job, then maybe you need to look in the mirror and ask yourself: Should you be wearing that badge in the first place? And, and that's that's police and, and firefighters as well. You know, the when we first started doing the active shooter training, guys are like, well, I didn't sign on for this. I'm like, well, you did. And I hear it all the time, even in the police academy, people are like, you know, officer safety. It's number one concern is going home at the end of the day. And I'm like, no, it's not. That's bullshit. Because like these people didn't sign on for this priority of life is innocent people, victims. And people that didn't sign off for this. So officer safety actually comes second, like, or else we wouldn't even go down range. And so, you know, like, obviously I'm not going to get into certain, maybe certain events that took place, but there's been a couple of active shooter and one went very bad and one went very well. And I love, I show the differences when I teach them, like, you see the difference between people that understand, like, you gotta, you gotta make a plan and go down range. And it's the same way. I have a lot of close friends in the fight department that are, they're rock stars, but, the unions up here are very strong in, in Northeast. And, you know, a lot of it is like, well, you know, that's not what I signed up for. But I never understood what the firefighters were. I'm not afraid to get shot at. I am petrified to run into a burning building. I think you fucking people are crazy. I don't know why you would ever run into a burning building, a building that's on fire. So I have mad respect for the firefighters. But I'm like, wait a second. You're going to run into a building that's on fire, but you're, you're afraid of getting dinged but we'll put some security in there with you. So I, I don't really understand it from the police or the fire side. Like, you know, I'm not looking to leave this world early, but you know, there's, there's worse ways to leave this world than protecting somebody and protecting somebody that needs you. So I, I always group the police and fire together, but I don't agree with that. Um, and I get these arguments for both, but you have to, we all signed on for this and you signed on to do a dangerous job. And I think that's why people like me and you have inner peace that, Hey, you know what, you're doing a job for the greater good. And, 
however it plays, it will play. But I think that there's a lot of people in this profession, certainly not everybody, but I think there's a good group of us that are drawn by that bond of, um, you know, doing a righteous job, getting your lunch pill, going to work and doing a, doing a righteous job for, for the greater good. I think that a lot of us still believe that. Well, just to add on to that, the men and women I know that wouldn't blink an eye before going into a scenario when they've assessed it and, and it's a warm zone and it's a calculated risk um, are the same ones that are training diligently, the same ones that are working on their fitness because they understand how dangerous this job is. And the, more often than not, the ones that say it's not in my job description are the ones that watch eight flicks, uh, eight flicks, <laughs> watch Netflix for eight hours. So really, you know, what I've seen is the ones that actually understand this job know how fucking dangerous it is and are training diligently because we know that fires are dangerous. We know we could get creamed on the side of a highway extricating someone from their car. And we know that obviously we're, you know, we're not too fond of bullets in the fire service. But that's why you do this, you know, this, uh, the training with PD. That's why you can learn about weapons. That's why you go take some classes yourself, even though you're a firefighter, so you can understand how to make a, you know, a weapon safe and understand you know how ballistic vests work and don't and just educate yourself on that side because we can't be naive anymore i mean i've been i was a firefighter 14 years started in 04 actually my first apartment so i started the fire service when mass shootings were already happening so it is a part of the modern day fire service yeah and it's uh, so with that uh i just had a, a fire agency up this way and I just knew, I knew the deputy chief and they called me up and they said, hey, would you be interested in coming in and train the whole fire department and just one day training block of, you know, some some control and restraint techniques dealing with um, emotionally disturbed people. And then we did a block on edge weapon defense. And then we did I did actually did a block on that duty to intervene to kind of, you know, lessen the fear between police and fire, understanding what this duty to intervene law means, which is, you know, which is we have to intervene if we see an excessive force. So I did a whole block of training. And it went great. And I, I gave the chief credit to, to put in some extra training for his guys just in the, in, in, in the, um, in what we do. So, and then some ways they can handle stuff, but as far as training police and fire. So I, I kind of, I thought about this years ago and I bring this up. I've been lucky enough to train cops from, and I'm really just been starting training firefighters recently, but train cops from here out to California and Columbia national police Canada. So I train cops everywhere. And I decided that there's a, I call it the 70-20-10 rule. So 70% of all people in your profession at the fight department and 70% of my profession, they do the job. They're good. They're going to show up. They're going to come to work. They're going to answer the radio. They're going to do what they're supposed to do. And they're going to do the job. They're not going to come into work every night with a, with a firecracker under their ass and, and try to set world records, but they're going to do the job. So on the, on the police department, if they have to answer 10 calls and write 10 tickets, that's what they're going to give you, 10. They're not going to give you 20. They're not going to go out there and make 10 arrests, but they're going to do what they're supposed to do. And that's most people in your profession and my profession. That I, that's my opinion after 35 years as a cop. 70% of us do the job. 20% are you guys that, that play shortstop and back cleanup. Those are the guys that um, they could retire and they don't want to retire. They, they, they train. If they're supposed to shoot twice a year, they shoot 10 times a year. If they're supposed to shoot an 80 and they shoot a 96, they go home and drink in the dock because they're so pissed off and they go to the range the next day. When they're exhausted, they're going to go work out and go for a run and train. And those, those are the guys that 
in both our professions, those are the guys you want to go on calls with, right? You say, I want to go, I want to go on a call with that fucking guy because he's going to take care of business. I'm, if I'm in the shit, that's the guy I want to see coming. That's the guy I want to go through the door when, when I'm, when a building's on fire, right? So that's only, that's only 20%. And those are your self-motivated people that they just believe in the mission so much that you don't have to motivate them. And what does that leave? 10%. And we both know what the 10% is, right? I call them, Raj retired on duty or the malcontents or the people that just don't, they just checked out. And sometimes those 10% are guys that people did, 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 they did the job at one time and now they're frustrated, but that 10% is where all our problems come from in law enforcement. They're the ones that get us into trouble. They're the ones that become national news or set case law. But I think that's only a small portion of it. So any training that I do now, I've always heard my whole career, we train to the least common denominator and I get it. I've heard it, but now that I'm old and I'm fussy, I'm like, well, well, who the, like, who the fuck said that? Like who set that standard? Because that means I have to dictate all our training to the 10 percenters. And I'm not that good that I can take some guy or some female officer that doesn't give a shit and get them switched on for whatever reason. I don't blame some of the people of my friends, right? They're switched off. I can't get them switched on. I don't dictate my training to the 20 percenters because those guys are already shit hot all the time. They come in locked in. They come in ready to go. They're in shape. They're smart. They read case law. So I, I direct everything to that 70 percent because those are the show me guys. Those are the guys when you say, hey, let me show you some cool stuff with the baton or let's run some firearms drills. Those 70 percenters, they come to training and they're like, all right, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. But if you show them cool shit, then they're like, hey, that class was that awesome. And then, you know, then they push the envelope and maybe they come in a little bit more motivated, but that's kind of what I found is that 70, 20, 10 rule. And that's big departments, that's small departments, that's fire services. I think we're all kind of wired the same way. I, I strive to get people into that 20% range, but I'm okay if you're in the 70% range. If you're in the 10% range, I'm sorry. Like I, I just don't have a lot of use for it at this point. The world, the, the, the profession doesn't need it. We need to get better. And, you know, sometimes we got to cut some of our, our dead weight off, you know? So that's a perfect segue to something I was going to read you. I was uh, Father's Day um, this year. I took my son to watch the new Spider-Man film. The quote is the policeman of um, I think Gwen is her name. Um, he's a he's a cop, and she says to him, "You're a good cop, Dad. You put on that badge and carry that gun because you know if you don't, someone who shouldn't will." That's that ten percent. So. A little while ago, you said about standards being lowered. Talk to me about, well, let, me, let me preface this. I've worked for arguably one of the best fire departments in America and one of the worst. So I have an interesting kind of perspective of, you know, do's and don'ts, should we say. Um, and the, the department where the bar was held extremely high and they would lose uh, 25% of their probationary class through attrition. If you couldn't reach it, thank you for trying. Good luck with another department. There, that bar stayed high through the ranks. They had, you know, great engineers, captains, chiefs, etc. When I saw the other side of the spectrum where the bar was in a trench, um, it was the polar opposite. So this expectation that I see with departments by lowering standards, you're going to get more people. I call bullshit on that because to me, what I've seen with my own eyes is the departments that are revered, that have these high standards are the ones that, ha <clears throat> excuse me, the ones that have uh, people lining up outside the door. So talk to me about your perception of this lowering of standards and what that's going to do to the number of good police officers or firefighters in uniform through your eyes. 
Yeah, so it, it, it's it's heartbreaking because you know people people believe in this job and they see the profession going a certain way. And some some of it's our own fault because you know we tell everybody the job sucks because we're frustrated with police reform. So we do it to ourselves to a point. But when we start to lower the standards, it, it was never the hardest standard ever. But like you say, you, people want to work. People want to work for a professional organization. I think the cops do want to be held accountable. Good cops want they want good cops want accountability. They want a high standard. You know, they want good training within the department. So when we start to lower the standards to put, you know, Greg Brady from the Brady Bunch, put, you know, put somebody in the suit. That's what we're looking to do. And we're catering to the eighth place trophy stuff. And it's it. You're seeing good cops retire, which we never had before. Like that never happened. Like you came into this job. I don't know what the numbers are now, but it was you had to work 32 years on the job and be 55 years old to pension out max pension. And it wasn't even a question like you. People knew their retirement day, but everybody was going to stick around. But now we're having good cops just walk in on the street and say, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to go into the family pesticide business or I'm going to go cut lawns because I don't I don't need the bullshit. But it it has a trickling down effect. You know, instead of instead of recruiting good officers, um, then you lower the standards and people just goes into that. People just say, yeah, it's all bullshit. And then they don't hold each other accountable. And then you're getting people that. Um, sometimes we're getting people on this job. They just, I mean, the physical fitness standard, if I, if you saw it, um, James, you'd be, you'd be mortified. We just keep dropping it. So, you know, let's change the, let's change the push-up test and the sit-up test and let's give people more time on the run and just to put bodies. And I, I get it. I get that we're in a, we're in a tough situation because we need bodies on the street, but we don't need the wrong bodies on the street either, you know? So it's, it's, it's a tough one for us right now, but I agree with you. Lowering the standards is not really, not really the answer, but I'm not sure they know what, it, what the answer is. So what have you seen? You've, you've said, as, as you touched on 30 plus years of policing, um, what have been the contributing factors that have led to lowering standards and led to more and more difficulty hiring? First off, we're not really getting the not really getting the numbers. So I think maybe so in my city we might have, let's see, four. I think one of the sites I saw we'll have, we'll have like four hundred city residents take the test, and I think after police reform there was like forty one. So you you're not really getting the numbers. Before you would get a ninety nine or ninety eight, you die on the list trying to get a job, and now they're making it down to the seventies and the eighties. So part of it is a numbers game. People. I don't think the the captain of the football team is not coming in to take this test. He's going to go into computers or computer science or go do something else. So first of all, we're not really, we're not really getting the numbers. That's first and foremost. And then the background checks probably used to be more strict. Um, you know, now like you have to have a track record of employment and good work record and showing up to work. And what I see now is because we can't pass everybody over, we got to hire somebody. So now if you jumped around and had nine different jobs, that would be a game changer before. Now they'd be like, well, at least he's working. Or if you had bad credit before, you weren't good. If you had bad credit, the police department wasn't going to hire you. And now today they will probably be like, well, everybody's got some stuff on their bad credit reports, you know? So that's kind of where it starts. 
And then we get right into the physical fitness standard. And then that that's where, again, that where we get into the, used to have to be strict on the push-up, sit-up, smile and a half. And then they just lower from, you know, we used to use the Cooper standards. I guess they still do, but you know, it's gone from 50% and well, let's, let's make it 40% on the Cooper standards. And then it's like, well, let's make it 30% to get into the Academy and then 40 to graduate. So that's kind of where it's, uh, it's gone to, but I'm hoping that I think the pendulum is starting to swing back. I think we're starting to get more people take the test. I think people are starting to hopefully realize it, it's a good job and we need more, we need good cops out there. So I'm hoping, I kind of feel like the pendulum is swinging. I don't want to get my hopes up, but I think we're kind of taking it back the narrative a little bit. So I'm positive that we're going to maybe improve, but I, I really don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of a slippery slope where we're at right now. So I want to get into the um, use of force and, and the other areas that you've become an expert in now. But you, before you touched on some of the career calls that you were giving credit to some of the line officers. So if you wouldn't mind, going to lead us through some of those calls and um, you know add in the uh, the validation that maybe wasn't acknowledged before. Um, I think I can talk about one one high profile event was obviously the Boston Marathon bombing and. Followed into the Watertown incident where the, the two suspects were apprehended. So I was, uh, I had a um, special reaction team. I had like an eight man team in the Bearcat that was in the Boston area that night. So we responded, we were involved in it. But if you watch the movie, so there's a couple of good, there's a good documentary out there. There's a Netflix one manhunt that's really good. It probably is, a, it's probably the most truthful one I've seen. It really gets into the dynamics and, uh, you know, some of the conversations that were had. So that was a really good one, but they, they made the movie Patriots Day. And, you know, a lot of the accolades went to the SWAT teams because, you know, the pictures and the videos, it's it's sexy to put pictures of the SWAT guys out there. But I'll tell you what, the guys that did the most on that were a couple of him and niggas from the Watertown Police Department, a couple of guys in patrol. Some of them were friends of mine. They came to work that night and everybody was on high alert. And the, the just the strangest thing I can tell you, you know, from me as a firefighter, sometimes Sometimes you just feel it in the air, you know, and and the city was shut down and we were searching for these guys around the clock. And it just was that night. We just knew something was going to happen. It's hard to explain, but I had eight guys with me in a in a bear cat. We're like tonight's a night like something it's going to happen tonight for sure. And, you know, the patrol guys in the surrounding towns were all kind of on high alert as well. But they got into a a, a chase and, and, a, and a huge gunfight, running gunfight with these guys. And they, at the time, they didn't even know. They thought it was a carjacking. And they were involved in a huge gunfight. And these guys were throwing bombs at them, pressure cooker bombs. And luckily, they were blowing. If they would have placed them, the officers would have been in trouble. But they, they were stupid enough to throw them. So when they hit, they blew up rather than out. So that kind of probably saved the cops' lives. But those guys, those guys shot till they had no ammo left. And then it turned into a hands-on. But... Uh, from start to finish, that Watertown incident with the apprehension of the first terrorist, 100% patrol. But if you see the clips, you would think it was all, all the SWAT teams because all the SWAT guys were running around. But that was a couple guys in patrol that really answered the bell that night. And I, every time I get a chance to plug those guys, they did they did epic police work. And even during the gunfight, they weren't even really quite sure who, who it was. And then afterwards, they figured it out. But that's just an example. These these patrol guys show up every time. And I, I always said that the patrol is the backbone of the police department. And these guys always, everybody wants to be a specialist. I want to work SWAT. I want to work gangs. I want a canine. And the guys that show up and just answer the bell on patrol, sometimes they just don't always get the credit. 
that was that was one really good incident I saw that Patrol really stepped up. Well, firstly, I watched Manhunt only a few weeks ago, and it was incredible. And one of the things that I don't think was reported, um, or maybe it was, I just I just didn't come across it, was after that massive fight, and they were about to detain his brother, he ends up getting in the car and running his own brother over. So, you know, this was the level of just extremism, and, and I would argue pure insanity that these, these two had at that point. Yeah, insanity. And then, you know, these, these, were, just, these were just bad, bad guys. And there was another incident I'll just talk about because, again, same thing. The, uh, the guys who patrol did a really good job. So right after the Columbine incident in '99, um, I believe. So we started to train up. We started so a lot of times it's what we go out to train patrol guys to do more tactical stuff. So when we first started to teach in-service veteran officers about this active shooter response, because in Columbine. You know, they did what at the time they did what they were taught and trained to do, which is contain it, stabilize it, suppress overreaction, try to develop intelligence and force a peaceful surrender and wait for SWAT. That's that's what they did at the time. That's the way we handle those calls. So after Columbine, we said, listen, we have to train patrol guys to use tactical type operations. And at the time, it wasn't received well at all. Like we were like, oh, you guys are a bunch of hot guys. And, you know, you just want to talk about SWAT and you know, uh, do all the cool stuff, but that's not for patrol. So at the time it wasn't received very well. And then as we were teaching it legitimately a mile from the location up in Wakefield, where we were teaching active shooter training. It was the day after Christmas, I think December 26, 2000. And then I won't mention the guy's name, but just referred to as the Mucko event or the Wakefield massacre. Um, this guy went into Edgewater Technologies and just started shooting people. And um, when it was over, he had killed seven people, but, the call for SWAT came out and because of the intelligence is always going to be off. So we were called, we were told there were two shooters. There were three shooters because it was so much carnage. They didn't know how many shooters were in the building. So SWAT was responding. And I was one of the first guys there from SWAT, but I tell you the guys from patrol are the guys that they, they crushed that they went in there and they stopped a lot of, uh, they probably saved a lot of lives. And what happened is when, uh, when Michael got done shooting, he sat down on the couch and, took a little bit of a break and you know his story was he was his soul he had he was born without a soul and god told him if he he would send him back to kill nazis and then he would give him a soul for killing nazis and it was all a ploy i think that was just going to be i think he had researched insanity defense ahead of time i think he was just pissed off that they they garnished his wages but whatever reason he went in and, and started shooting people but the patrol guys did exactly what we we're teaching them to do it was like one guy working the detail, another detective and two patrol guys. And they formed the four man contact team. They went into the foyer. And right when the subject suspect was taking a break, they apprehended him real fast. And that person had he had rifle, shotgun, plenty of ammunition. And it's a bad day because he, he, he murdered seven people. But the carnage would have been way worse, except the patrol guys. They didn't wait. They didn't wait for SWAT. And this was relatively new. This was 2000. So this active shooter response was really new. And these guys did what they're training, what we trained them to do. They say, listen, we're going to pack up and set a contact team. And then they apprehended him. And again, same thing. All the news clips I saw was all the SWAT guys running around. I'm like, wait a second. Those patrol guys, those guys took care of business. And they were shit hot that day. Like, they answered the bell. And they probably saved a lot of lives that day. And, you know, I'm not sure that they got the accolades. Because, again, patrol doesn't always get the um, respect that they deserve. Because everybody's looking to make some kind of a specialty job. So I had a, a unique 
insight into school shootings um, or a potential school shooting when I took my son back to school after a medical appointment, just an annual physical, and just so happened right when I was at reception dropping him off, they got a code red. Now, they'd done drills before, and I think it's heartbreaking for a parent to hear their children talking about how they rehearsed for their own murder in school today. Um, but, you know, they'd taken the training did, you know, seriously, and, and the door closed behind me, and they said, sorry, Mr. Gurion, we got to go. And it was almost like a supply closet room right behind the, the desk. And so even though it was a, a credible threat, but it never materialized, it was a pissed-off ex of one of the kids' Um, mothers who said he was going to come in and, and shoot up the school, I believe. He never he never actually showed up. But I saw the vulnerability of these teachers. There was no communication. And I don't think you can communicate. So the only people I think that were really communicating with the outside was probably the principal and, you know, maybe a handful of other people. So the rest of the school was just sitting and waiting, you know, and these children have no idea if someone's going to burst through the door. And, you know, so it was it was a really interesting perspective being a first responder, but seeing it from completely the other side of the glass with all of these uh, these atrocities that we've seen. You know, you have some that went very, very poorly, like Parkland or Valdi. You had some you know, that we've seen where the SRO immediately went towards the danger and neutralized the threat. What are some of the principles and philosophies that you talk to agencies and schools about school safety in 2023? So a lot of it is, is preparation. And again, pe- people don't, it's fearful for people. I, to- I totally get it. And I totally get it. It's a, it's a scary thing. But for me, so much of this stuff is about preparation, right? Like you don't want to be the... <sighs> the body can't go where the brain has never been. So like a lot of it is, is preparation right down to, and, and again, I've, we've all heard the arguments that, you know, we used to train school safety fire drills and yet people don't die in school fires, but we, we prepped it and nobody really lost their mind about it because we say, hey, this is just preparation. If something happens, everybody knows what to do. And you almost have to make it a, you have to make it a part of your like situation awareness you just have to make a part of your daily life so with the schools with the teachers i think it's okay when the teacher sets up their classroom i don't know that it should be such a bad thing that when they set it up they set up their desk and they have a a parachute cord if they have to tie off the door and it's in their top drawer and they have uh, a glass breaking tool from home depot and they have a flashlight and they put the instead of putting their desk on the far end of the room put their desk near the door so that if they have to secure the door, then they're pushing the desk a foot rather than 40 feet across the door. And then, you know, making sure you know how to work the windows and and kind of just going through a a visual like visualization techniques. If something bad were to happen, what would I do? I'm going to do this, this, this. And then you you rehearse it mentally a few times and you prepare for it. And you set up your classroom when you go to set up your classroom for the day and you put out your crayons and your and your pencil sharpeners. It's OK to prep for, I think, and I don't think I'm a crazy person, that you just prep in case there was a hostile intruder, what you would do. Because I think some of the lockdown stuff, it certainly works. And, uh, you know, however you want to call it, run, hide, fight, deny, defend. There's, there's every analogy. Everybody's teaching something different, but they're all teaching the same thing, which is lockdown if possible, get away if possible, and then fight and, and you know, use these use tools or whatever tools you need to, hot coffee, barrels, backpacks, whatever you need to. So for me, it's a lot of it about preparation with the, with the schools and even the businesses in town is just having, you know, having some preparation, having, you see 
defibrillators now in every buildings, right? Almost every building is going to be defibrillator. Why, why can't you have a, a locker with stop the bleed stuff and tourniquets? Again, I, I don't think it puts me as a crazy person, but people don't want to have the discussions, but it's like emergency break glass. What's wrong with having emergency break glass? And then you have some preparation. If something happens that you know, what's going to take place. And then the police and fire working, it's a combined effort. So the people understand, listen, we only have to really, we don't have to survive for two hours. We have to survive for like seven minutes because the police department and fire department is going to be coming in here, crashing and banging. So this is not a long mission. This is what I'm going to do in the next five minutes to survive this event. And again, it's a fine line because you want people to be prepared. You don't want people to be triggered or freaked out, but I think the preparation is key and all of us working together is, is, is the key as well. Now, what about from the deterrent standpoint? Uh, to me, when you hear the psychology of a lot of these shooters, I had uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman on a couple of times. You know, a lot of times when they're actually approached with true resistance, they give up. You know, sometimes they're killed, obviously, but but a lot of times you know, they're, they're kind of shaken out of that psychosis and then and then they stop. I, For me personally, as a parent in Florida, the the armed police officer, the armed SRO is a great deterrent. I hear a conversation of, you know, every teacher having a gun all the way through to no guns in the school whatsoever. Where's that kind of happy medium through your eyes? Yeah, you know, I do. I do like a police officer in every school. I work for a city that the mayor is really big on school safety and every school in the city has a police officer armed and assigned to it. So I, I'm a huge fan of that. I think in this day and age, a police officer should be in the school. And again, they can make all the political arguments. It's a deterrent for sure. Cause you know, I, I think it was, was it the, was it the Pulse nightclub where he looked at one location first and there was too much, too much security and went to a different location. Yeah. It was my first you. It was uh, uh Disney Springs. Um, and then he packed up straight away and went straight to Pulse and, and executed, you know, tens and tens of people. Right. So I think that, I think the, it's a deterrent. I, I'm a fan of police officers in the schools with a firearm or retired military. I'm okay with that. Retired firefighters. I'm okay with that. I don't love, I don't love the fact of, and I, I don't want to turn this into a second. I'm a second amendment guy. I don't, I'm not going to turn this into a political debate. I think everybody has a right to have a firearm. I'm okay with all that stuff, but I don't love everybody carrying guns. I don't love the let's arm the teachers. Let's arm the doctors. Let's arm the pilots only because more training goes into it than we do. You know, I teach firearm safety courses and we talk about guns and we have them shoot a paper target. But there's a whole nother dynamics to deadly force and using force and having that gun out in a tactical environment. There's a whole separate, probably six month class you could teach on human factors and human dynamics. So I don't know that I want um, people just running around with guns. There's a, there's a lot of training that goes into it, not just the physical part of being able to ding a target, but the mental makeup of having to take somebody's life if you need to and what to do before and what to do after and the visualization techniques that come into play. So I see both sides of it. I'm not 100% against it. I would say my personal opinion is I like military, firefighters, police officers with firearms that have that have additional specialized training, not just this is a, uh, this is a safety course and this is how to shoot paper. That makes sense. No, it does completely. And I'm going to unpack that whole, uh, you know, stages of uh, of force in a moment. But just before we do, 
I've worked in agencies that worked extremely well, FD, PD, you know, with each other, and then also worked well with the counties and cities around them. Anaheim would be a perfect example of that. And then I've worked with some that the moment I've literally called for help and there's a dotted line in the road and they're like, oh, that's the city. It's not our problem kind of response. So what have you seen as far as the importance of that communication between neighboring departments and agencies and our ability to actually be effective in some of these, these shootings that we respond to? Yeah, you, ha- you have to check. You have to train together. And more than anything, it's to it's for those relationships. It's that I can see this firefighter. I can see this cop from, you know, we, we're surrounded by some smaller towns. But, OK, I know this guy. I've trained with this guy. We know how we're going to go about our business. And again, we've really, we really moved full speed ahead with this up in Massachusetts and just doing the drills uh, and training together and forming those relationships. So we know kind of what we're going to do. So like with us, with the fight department, it's, it's so simple. It's like, listen, uh, if we're, if we're a rescue task force, Chuck, James, James, you got, you got, um, you got, bodies, I got security. Like, I'm not going to tell you how you do your job on rescue and who you want to treat and how you want to tag them. If you want to get the bad guy out before a a cop because the bad guy's injuries are more severe, you make those calls and I'm not going to argue with you and you're going to rely on me to get security. So I have to trust you. You trust me. And again, state police, you know, federal guys, we have to train together so that we're not. And I've been on those calls too. I've been on those calls where it's, it's, I'll call it the PP game, right? Everybody's taking their PP out and see who's bigger and shit doesn't get done there. And actually it's, it actually makes it worse. And we're wasting time when we could be doing other more productive things. So it's like time management, time efficiency. So when you have those, when you train ahead of time and you have those relationships ahead of time, and we know right off the bat, James, you got fire, you're doing this, Chuck, you got security, you're doing this, you know, I'll control tactics, you control rescue. It works. And I think, when you do have an event, I think it's proven that that stuff will work. And you've seen some of the some of the locations where it worked out. It wasn't necessarily people that worked together, but they've they kind of had their roles and everybody stayed in their lane and they they played out way more successful than some of the ones that didn't go so well. Well, you touched on a moment ago about the uh, the worries of having a lot of civilians walking around carrying guns, and we see it in law enforcement as well. You know, the the more training, as we discussed at the beginning of this conversation, the Vietnam vets, the more training and exposure people have, it seems like the less likely they are to go to lethal force. So from the defensive tacti- tactics and kind of martial arts lens now, what has been your evolution on that side in the 30 plus years of policing you've been involved with? So the, the de-escalation stuff seems to be like a hot topic, but it's always really been about force mitigation. And I would just say now it's a little bit more scripted. And now people are understanding de-escalation is it's physical, but it's also verbal stuff. People hear de-escalation, they think it's verbal fucking wizardry or magic words and stuff. And it's not. It can be words. It can be active listening skills, but it kind of starts off in your response right off the bat. So um, I think they just they. They kind of change it. For me, it's always been about good. It's what's good police work. So back in the day, it was called verbal judo. And then it was called verbal defense and influence and, and communication, karate, all this stuff. And everybody just wants to spin it. Now the big one is called ICAT. And that stands for Integrating Communication Assessment and Tactics. And that's the new big one because IACP, Perth, they're like ICAT is the way to go. And I don't disagree, but it's just... 
it's just the way we've always done stuff to a point. It's just a putting a spin on it. It's just using good communication, good skills and, and good tactics. But where it's evolved is it's less black and white. I think now we try to teach people to more have an emotional intelligence. We've kind of added emotional intelligence to our training and critical thinking versus when I first became a cop, it was, so you even hear today, you hear like, was it a good shoot or a bad shoot? And I'm like, we need to stop saying that because no shoot is good. If, we're, if we really believe reverence to human life and preservation life is important, then how, how the flying after we call something a good shoot? It's Because you know what it is? It's still, James, it's a family tragedy. Like somebody still gave birth to that person. So he still had loved ones or she had loved ones. Like it still is a family tragedy. These mental illness calls where somebody gets shot, it still is a family tragedy. So we need to stop calling them good and bad, first off the bat. But, and it's, it's about force mitigation. So before it was always... We had this like use of force continuum and I don't dislike it, but we're trying to get officers away from the use of force continuum because the use of force continuum means if he's, if he's resisting, I get to do this. I get to use this tool. If he's assaultive, I use this tool. If he's a deadly force, I use this tool. And we're teaching more proportionate force and critical thinking because just because somebody's, you know, it, it has to be proportionate to the threat. So I'll, I'll give you an example. So if somebody, if I get a call for an armed individual involved in a stabbing, so I show up and I'm by myself and here's a guy in the middle of the road. He's 22 years old. He's 200 pounds. He's agile and he's got a, he's got a samurai sword. And I'm, you know, 20, 15, 20, 25 feet away. I get behind cover. I start giving verbal commands and he rushes at me and I have to shoot him. It's reasonable. It's legal. It's within policy, but it's also proportionate to the totality of those circumstances. It's proportionate to the threat, right? So now if I get the same call, a person armed with a knife and he stabs somebody, but now the stabbing is, it's a, it's a homeless person that stabbed his other homeless person friend and the person is conscious and alert and they're calling the fight department. So the stabbing's not a real bad stabbing. It's like a superficial wound. And then I get there and four other cops show up. And now the suspect is 67 years old and he's a homeless person. He's a 0.27 blood alcohol and he's waving the knife in the street. So now we show up and back in the day, it would be, well, he's within 21 feet away. He poses a risk. So now it's, it's reasonable to shoot him. So we switched out of that years ago. And honestly, back in the day, that would turn into a shooting. And then they would say, well, he was 21 feet away. He posed a threat. He had the ability opportunity to, Cause death or serious bodily injury, it's a good shoot, and then the end of the day. And I'm not saying that was right or wrong. I'm just saying we could be better. And the better is today, that second guy doesn't get shot because we show up and we go, okay, let's think critically here. Let's control our emotions and let's go, okay, you get a shield over there. Mike, you get a shield. Billy, you get less lethal. What do you got? I got a taser. Okay, you are lethal cover. Uh, who's good at talking people? James, you're good at talking people. You do the talking. And let's try to freight train this guy with the shield or let's try to use a 40 millimeter and let's go force mitigation. Let's try to, let's try to not shoot this guy. And that's kind of where we're at now. So with our use of force stuff, it's about force mitigation. So everybody thinks the law changed with use of force. It didn't. It's just, we have to, we have to be better explaining the whys. You punch that guy square in the mouth. Okay. It might be reasonable, but why did you do it? You hit that guy with a baton. People think we can't use batons anymore. You can but why? It has to be reasonable, but also has to be proportionate based on severity of the crime. Does the subject pose an immediate threat to the officer's safety or others? 
Is he actively fighting or resisting? And it has to it has to be ethical as well, not just use of force continuum. So I think that's what we really try to teach now is emotional intelligence, critical thinking, know the law, but stop using these use of force continuums to as an I get to chat. You know what I mean? No, I do completely. And it's so refreshing to have someone with your story career with with the positions that you've held to to keep talking about kindness and compassion and preserving human life because this is something that i've seen and we get a very unique view through the eyes of a firefighter and a paramedic but so many of the desperate people whether that's uh, manifesting through addiction homelessness prostitution violence gangs etc reverse engineer to that little toddler, they were never dreaming of being a gangbanger when they were, you know, watching Barney the Dinosaur. Um, so what are you seeing through your eyes over the last few decades of the mental health crisis, you know, in this country? Because whether it's, you know, it's the social media element, the the ease to ease of division that we saw, especially over the pandemic, whether it's the obesity through my eyes, I, it seems very evident that it's behind so many of the problems that we're seeing. But I don't want to load the question. What What is your perception of the mental health element through over three decades of policing? Oh, yeah. it's it's So we really, everything was really that, that, you know, bad guy does this, we do this. And the, the mental illness is a real problem in this country. It really is. We had a couple of big state hospitals that let out. And anybody that thinks the mental illness issue is, is bullshit. It's not, I would tell you that you're just not informed or it was taught to you not the correct way because it's a, it, mental illness is a real problem in this country. So we deal with right off the bat, you have, you have criminal and non-criminal. So those are our interactions. We deal with people in crisis all the time. And right off the bat, I want to know crime or no crime, like, because it's going to kind of set the tone, even not, and that's with patrol or that's with SWAT. You say right off the bat, what is a governmental interest in this case? And if this is somebody stopped taking their medicine, like at the end of the day, most people suffering from mental illness, when they're, when they're right and they're on their meds, they're good people. And when they're not, it's usually a good person having a bad day. So again, that goes with that emotional intelligence. You show up on the call and it's not, when I first became a cop, it was the, per, the people were either non-compliant, they were either compliant or they were non-compliant. It really, it, it was that simple, James. And, you know, my use of first use of force class, I think they were like, you know, if they if they run from you, they're going to get a slap. If they put their hands on you and fight with you, it's going to be a trip to the emergency room. And I'm not saying that was right, but that was kind of back in the day. It was, well, they're they're criminal. They're either compliant or they're not. It's really not that simple. So like people resist. And that's not to say that use of force is not necessary, because a lot of times it is those these people get a vote, too. However, it's it's always good when we can show force mitigation, like, okay, you did this, but why? But at the end of the day, people fight and are violent and try to kill you or saw you. They're in a different blend. Those are dangerous people. But people that resist, actively resist a lower level of force, people resist for different reasons. There's language barriers. People are afraid of the police sometimes. That just that happens. People come from different jurisdictions. People come from different countries where the police might be corrupt. Um, people resist because they're confused. And sometimes we do, sometimes people want to know, I find two people want two things with the, from the police. They want to know who you are and what your business is with them. So if I'm, if I'm going to arrest you, we need to be better at saying, James, you're under arrest and this is why, versus we automatically go hands-on. It's okay to do that, but people want to know their business. So people resist sometimes because they're confused. 
But at the end of the day, people resist sometimes because they suffer from mental illness, whether it be Asperger's or medicine. So we need to find ways to control and restrain people and still understand the, the big picture, you know? So a lot of times now we teach subject or suspect and the use of force isn't different, but the way you handle the call is different, if that makes sense. So if you just beat up your wife and I'm like, James, you know the deal, put your hands behind your back. You got to go to jail. That's the way it goes. All right. I need you to comply. And you square up and you take your shirt off. You're like, I'm not going. And I'm like, put your hands behind your back. And you're like, no, giddy up. Let's go. Like, you're going to go to jail and you're going to go to jail because you pose an immediate threat and it's time for you to go to jail. Like you don't control when you're going to jail, like you're going to jail. I'll try to talk you into handcuffs, but it's not going to be a, it's not going to, it's not a social experiment. I'm not going to spend 20 minutes trying to ask you to put the handcuffs on. You committed a crime and you're going to jail and that's the way it goes. Now, if I come to your house and it's a, we'll call the section 12 or a pink paper, a psych eval, And you're like, you called your sister in Kansas and she says you're suicidal. And you're like, no, F you, I'm not going. It's the way I handle the call is going to be different because it's going to be like, listen, James, here's option A. Option A is do me a favor. Come down the stairs. I'm going to have the ambulance roll up. You're going to climb in the back of the ambulance. No stress here. There's no cop charges. The only reason the police are here is because we have to make sure you go for your own well-being. No, I'm not going. All right, well, listen, is there anything I can say to get you to go to that ambulance? Like, I'll follow you up. I'm going to try to talk you into going and I'm not going to use force as fast because there's no governmental interest. You're a bad, you're a good guy having a bad day. And I don't need to turn this into a use of force. And I'll be honest with you. Most of the time when you map that out and you breathe and you don't react on, you're going to jail and you, you're going to hospital. You say, no, I'm not. If I can just breathe and go, okay. I, I use a lot of times, you know, Lou Holtz, what's important now. So Lou Holtz, coach of Notre Dame had this thing called the wind uh, theory. So when he took over at Notre Dame, 35 times a day, his players all had to say, what's important now? And that means you wake up, bam, what's important now? Shut the alarm clock. Good. What's next? Get out of bed. There's two. What's next? Make a good breakfast. There's three. What's next? Make your fucking bed. There's four. So get your playbook. So 35 times a day, they had to say, what's important now? And take the next step. So I use that in, for like police work. I use it for SWAT. I use it for training, which is Focus on what's important. My ego is not important. This guy says, no, I'm not going. Instead of saying, hey, you see the badge, motherfucker? You see the badge? You see the badge? I told you you're going. I'm not going to handle a, sus a subject the same way I'm going to handle you as a criminal. So now I'm going to say, hey, listen, what's important now? What's important now is I don't want to turn this into a 20-page use of force report. While it's important is this guy needs to go to the hospital. And what is it going to take to get me there? If it's a psych and he says, I, uh, the CIA is... Uh, tracking me. I want you to put tinfoil on, on your head. And guess what? I'm going to put tinfoil on my head to get you in that ambulance. If he says, I can't step on the floor to walk out there, I'm going to say, what, what do you need me to do, sir? Put towels on. You know what I'm going to do? Instead of me saying old school Chuck and saying, I'm not putting towels on. That's absurd. You know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to put the towels down because what's important now? Get this guy to the hospital. Not my ego, not my feelings. Just get take care of your business. So we really try to work it out into all the use of force stuff, even all the way up to deadly force. You know, we, we try to we try to use use distance, space, barriers, you know, and and slow down the pace when we can. Now we always can't do that. Like at the end of the day, that's where the misconceptions come out with de-escalation. Is I say this all the time: the the bad guy gets a vote too. So we try to when we can, if it's tactically feasible and tactical safe to do so, we will try these techniques. But 
sometimes you just got to go to work and take care of your business. And it's that simple because the priority of life is innocent people first and protection of the community first, and then protection of the subject of the suspect. Well, we talked about use of force. Um, there are some of very obvious cases recently. We have the George Floyd incident. We have the um, the subway choking recently with the, with the, the Marine. Um, what is your perspective of the tools that you feel should be used if well-trained um, versus some of the tools that have been taken away and maybe the danger that that's going to create? A perfect example, I do jujitsu myself and the rear naked choke, um, when used by the right person that understands it, I would I would argue is probably a very good tool to restrain someone and put them in the cuffs. But I'm also not a police officer, I'm a firefighter. But when I hear more and more and more of these things taken away, to me as a martial artist, the same way as they're removing canine programs, I see more people getting hurt and killed, not less. So yeah, and it's, it's again, it's a tricky area because more tools that you're proficient with, the, the more tools, the better. So I think there's ways that the chokeholds was a big thing up this way. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be careful what I say about it because I have to. But, like, at the end of the day, um, LVNR, lateral vascular neck restraint, we we can't teach them, we can't train them, and we never could. LAPD banned them years ago. So, But the way it stood was deadly force was not tool-specific. So if you were, if you were immediate defense of life, you know, preservation of life, immediate defense of life, self-defense, defense of another life in peril, then anything was reasonable. Then any tool of immediate means was applicable, but whether it be I run you over my police car because you're pulling out a gun from behind your seat. So that was always the case. But with police reform, a really big up here in banning chokes. So I, I get it. It's um the, the way the law really reads is at any level it's banned. Uh, could it could it possibly get overturned one day? With, with when a case comes up, it could. The problem is for it to get overturned. Their job and then you fight for their job and then maybe somebody finds that it was constitutionally reasonable because your life was in peril and then it becomes law. But right now they're banned up here. So um, for the chokes, I get why they did it. I understand. If you have that skill set, it kind of goes with preservation of life. So if you came on a call, I'm screaming for yelling for help. I'm going to give me some backup up here. He's on top of me. And you get to that call. And there's a person on top of me. And they got both hands wrapped around my firearm. And they're trying to disarm me. And I'm like, James, James, he's got my gun. He's got my gun. He's got my gun. That's a deadly force confrontation. Like either, either he's starting a gun collection or we're fixing to get shot. Very simple, right? So. Now, you have a decision to make. There's people around. You have a decision to make. That's That could be – you would be justified to shoot that person if you feel my life is in peril. So now you go, okay, I'm justified to do a contact shot, but I'm worried because Chuck's on the bottom. I'm worried about these innocent people around. I have some skills in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, so I'm just going to put – I'm just going to tap him out. So now you go to a, a, a chokehold and you put him out. Now – if you did that in Massachusetts, you're going to get fired. Like, that's just the way it goes. Now, would, would, are you going to stand for it? No, we're going to say, hey, wait a second. Like, that's preservation of life. But my argument for that, to save your career, would be like, okay, James had a decision to make. 
James could have taken James could have done a contact shot and shot this person square in the face. James could have taken this guy's life. However, James being a reverence to human life guy and a preservation of life guy, he made a decision. Instead of taking this person's life, James didn't feel like this guy should lose his life because he's making bad decisions on this date. He's drunk. He's trying to attack a cop. So James says, I'm going to put him in a choke and I put him asleep. And now this guy, you wake him up. He goes to the hospital. You preserve my life, right? You preserve innocent people because you're not pissing rounds down range. And who else's life did you preserve? The bad guys, the subjects. So yeah. So the suspect's life is now preserved and now he lives to fight another day. So we, we have these arguments. It's going to be like James could have taken this person's life. Instead, he saved his life. He preserved his life using less force. And then you're still going to get fired. So that's the problem. And I, I agree with you is we got to find a way to not take tools away. The chokes, I think I'm just going to take the high road and say, we'll kind of see how it plays out. But as far as jujitsu goes, we're, um, we're trying to add that. I, I just did the first. Um, I get a lot of young DT instructors now. So I oversee. Uh, use of force and defensive tactics training for uh, 357 police departments in mass. So I've looked at I've looked at Georgia, uh, New Jersey's big into the BJJ stuff now. So we're trying to add it into the program. So my goal is I just did um, I did a 42 person class defensive tactics 12 day class, and then I added a five day. Um, so I'm not going to call it jujitsu. We call it ground defense and de-escalation. And that's really what it is. But it's all the stuff you do, James. It's, it's ground control. It's breathing. It's um, some control restraint holds, but we stay away from the neck and everything is really about body positioning. But a lot of stuff I see with cops making bad decisions on the ground is because they panic on the ground and they stop thinking. But if you're breathing and you're thinking and you're thinking logically and you got that BJJ background, I think a lot of it is just controlling your stress and your arousal when you're on the ground. So We've added a lot of that stuff. So I think moving ahead in mass, what we're looking to do is add some, add more BJJ into the basic academy and then roll without a specialty training. We're not going to ram it down cops throat at the in-service level to make it mandatory, but we're going to do is try to roll them out and get cops involved in uh, this is a skill set. So that's kind of my vision moving ahead is just bring more skill sets into that. And again, sometimes it's just what you call it. Like if, if you're on top of me and you grab my gun, um, you know, we're going to have to use body positioning and stuff instead of calling it you know, a Kimura or something like that. So we just have to stay within our legal guidelines. But I think that the state has been really good with letting us bring some BJJ stuff in. But I think it's another option. You don't have to do BJJ, but more options. You go with the baton, you go with your taser, you go with your hands, you go with your pugilistics, and you're good with control and restraint. I think that creates a safer officer and more physically fit officer as well. Now, one thing I've observed in a lot of the schools that I've trained in um, is a lot of us, and to be fair, it's just it's a small space and there's a lot of people. It's very popular now, but a lot of us start on our knees. What about the application of wrestling and judo um, kind of coupled with uh, jujitsu? Are you seeing some of the... It almost seems like because jujitsu is a very sport-focused thing as well, sometimes we're actually kind of getting further away from the kind of grappling skills that you would use in the street or in uniform. Yeah, so we still we really separate the two between fighting for sport and the pavement arena because two two entirely different things. Even if you can just keep teach some basic wrestling skills and sprawls, if you can teach sprawls, you're already putting a guy in the position to succeed and stuff. But yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of. And I, I don't do BJJ. Or I've tried to take, I've taken some programs. I've taken Dan Severin's 
Uh, Dan the B Severin, he was an original UFC guy. He's great. I've taken some of the Gracie stuff. So I try to I try to take a little bit of boxing, uh, a little bit of pugilistics, a little bit of wrestling, and I try to put a package together. For, that's what's always worked for me, so that people just aren't getting caught in between the sport world and the and the pavement arena because it is two two entirely different things. But um, I think the more the more you can get police officers back into going hands on with people, we really got away from it the last few years. With the with the young recruit, I always say if you can if you can get him comfortable, even if he's even if he's a victim of bad parenting, never played sports, never left the house, talked on his phone all day long. If you can teach him comfortable talking to people, like you got we gotta get people comfortable communicating and not just talking on the cell phones. These these younger officers don't have that skill set because they social media, right? So comfortable with communication, comfortable putting their hands on people. Right. You're going to have these close interactions like you, you like, you know, you're going to be having a more personal up close reaction with somebody who hates you, is trying to kill you than your, your loved ones. So comfortable with communication, comfortable with putting the hands on people, comfortable with pain, you know, being it's a, it's a contact sport and comfortable with righteous violence, not comfortable with violence. I got I got beat up in a court case and they said, why do you teach us to be comfortable with violence? I said, I don't. I teach them to be comfortable with righteous violence. It's two entirely different things. Like if you've never been in a fight in your life and a police baton is made of steel, I got to teach you how to hit somebody with a steel pipe when you've never been hit with a, when you've never been in an altercation. So those four things I think are really the key. Physically fit, physical fitness is a big thing. And then, you know, comfortable putting their hands on, you know, people, basic control and restraint stuff and not this, we, you know, we can't go hands-on with people. There's a hesitation to use force and there's a hesitation to go hands-on with people now. And everybody wants to use these gadgets and these tools and you know, I'm going to tase him from afar and I'm going to use a bowler wrap. And we keep coming up with these gadgets rather than just teach old school stuff, which is how to talk to people and how to control people physically. It's not, I don't think it's difficult. It's not that hard. We're making it more hard than it is. Well, speaking of that, sadly, some videos have come out from the UK, which is, you know, where I'm from originally. Um, and it seems like the the British police probably have, you know, very little training, but also are having a lot of their ability to go hands-on taken away based on the way that these scenes are kind of unfolding. So through your eyes, whether it's here in the US or, or overseas, what are the dangers of them constantly stripping away the type of person that you can even, you know, arrest or intervene with these days? It's just, it causes, it, one, it's not safe for the public. It's just, it just isn't, but it's not safe for the officers to have this hesitation and hesitation to go, to go hands-on with people. Like we're always now, we're always just creating space and trying to go to these tools. And yeah, I would argue that, and again, I, I, I think the baton is a good tool. Taser, these are good tools, but we're almost going back. We're almost going back to the sixties where everything is going to be like batons and, and, and like tasers from afar because of people don't want to go hands on. But I'll be honest with you. If I, I've been tased before, it is not a pleasurable event at all. And I thought I had a high pain threshold and I've been tased multiple times. And I think it's horrible. Like it's the most painful thing in the world. It's like 30, 30 years of marriage wrapped up in a five second ride. It's, it's not fun. <laughs> and if, if I can go hands on with a person and not tase them, I don't like to tase people. And I've tased a bunch of people. I don't like it. When my tase is out, I'm like, bro, please, please listen to me. This is not going to be a pleasurable event. Can you do what I ask? Like, I'd rather go hands on with a guy and not tase him. I'd rather go hands on 
then then split a person with a baton because they they just decided to fight the police on that night. So you're you're almost you're almost having this over dependency on some of these long range tools versus just going in there and putting their hands on people. Like cops have been putting their hands on people forever. It's okay, you know. Sometimes sometimes by me just coming in and putting my hands on you, it will prevent the use of force. You know. When I hear of you know the the push to the the less lethal option um and we heard the word tasers i always think of uh, orange county sheriff's deputy brandon coates and he was very very close to um my neighboring station i would go to sometimes it literally just sat with the crew um got a call went out there's a traffic stop and then they got a call you know a minute or so later officer down and he was found shot to death with his taser deployed this is what worries me about this constant push for the less lethal, you know, as we've, we just spent the whole hour and a half talking about why you should have those options and the physicality and the tools to not go to lethal force. But what worries me is if you're constantly deterring, you know, when that decision needs to be made, maybe, you know, that's kind of stifled by all the kind of red tape around that decision. God forbid you have to make it. Right. So, a lot of this job is really about tempo. Like when you have time, you know, de-escalation, you know, distance plus cover equals time, time equals options. That's fine. And I, and I get it and I teach that and I think it's good, but it's all, it's about tempo as well. Like you gotta know when to, you gotta know when to go to work as well. And you have to know when to use deadly force because less lethal force is not the option to everything. At the end of the day, like if somebody's life is in peril, like you have to use deadly force sometimes and we can't have officers running around with this hesitation. So less lethal is an option. But if you're dealing with a, if you're dealing with a, a dangerous, violent, com- combative individual and your life is in peril. So immediate defense of life. If I have a guy with a knife, I have a guy with a firearm. Your, your primary force option is deadly force. Less lethal is a secondary force option. So when I have that guy that I told you about in the street, that's 67 years old, with a knife, like that is still going to be a gun call until somebody with less lethal gets there. And then it's going to be, okay, what do you got for less lethal? I got 12 gauge beanbag. I got 40 millimeter. I got a taser. Those are secondary options. But yes, I, I panic about this stuff. I have nightmares and I drink in the dark over this stuff. Cause I see it. Cops, cops aren't even drawing their firearm out on calls that they, the firearm needs to be out, you know, felony car stop where the shots were fired. And I'm watching guys with their gun still hosting. I'm like, Dude, what are you doing? Well, you know, no, I don't know. Please tell me, like, I don't want you to die or get hurt. Like, you didn't sign on for that as well. So it's a fine line. But I think as long as you're teaching righteous use of force, those are secondary force options. But if your priority of life is, again, the public and yourself as well, like, you can't put your life in peril because you're breaking out a taser on the deadly force call. You know, the the less lethal options is always going to be covered with lethal cover, non-lethal cover. It has to be that. We can't have, you know, we, we do it in these, we see it in these scenarios. It's a gun call and the taser is out. Well, I don't know that the taser is, is even has play in that situation at the time, you know? One more area, and I want to get your kind of king for a day perspective in a moment before we wrap up. But something that I talk about all the time from the fire service point of view is sleep deprivation. 
and you know the, our men and women. I don't know if it's, it's the same up where you are because it seems like the northeast is the only area that does have more of a normal work week. Um, but most of the U.S. where they're working 56 hours a week before understaffing creates an 80-hour week with mandatory overtime. And so I saw it in myself that just the crippling effects, you know, the, the inability to almost think straight and remember even where to go to the call, no matter get there and function properly. So I look at some of these, you know, one would argue a gray area um, police shootings, um, and I never, ever, ever hear had that person slept, had they been forced to do you know, multiple hours? I mean, obviously, the level of training is another part of it, but I never hear sleep deprivation factored in. You've been you know, an expert witness in, in a lot of these things. You've analyzed a lot. You've trained a lot. Talk to me about the uh, the impact of sleep deprivation on the decision-making skills that's putting some of these officers in these situations. So huge, like elephant in the room, and I'm probably gonna get some of my friends mad at me here. So I went through the, um, I went through Bill Lewinsky's 40-hour use of force analyst class, and I went to his 19-week uh, advanced force analysis class. It's pretty, I mean, it's great class if you ever, ever get to it. But he really focused on the human factors and human decision making and memory, and it's a great, great class. But you you analyze literally hundreds of use of force cases. And I see it around here all the time. So sleep deprivation plays a major, major role. And up in the Northeast, we work too much. Every single one of us, my, and I'm guilty as well, so I'm not taking myself out of the mix. Average cops up here working 60 hours a week, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And you're almost, the, the studies have shown you're almost coming to work. If you're working that much and you're not sleeping, and I've done it. So trust me, I know I know I'm off. I know my decision-making is slower. Um, you're almost like coming to work like a 0.50 blood alcohol. Like you're almost like an intoxicated person when you're not sleeping. So we work too much up here. Uh, the salaries are okay, but there's a chance to work overtime, and we all work too much overtime. And, um, again, it's a well-rested cop. So we, we get blamed all the time. We look at these um, – they say all the time, cops are complacent, cops are complacent, we get complacent. So I, I say, like, sometimes we get complacent, but now I'm like, is it complacency or is it the dude sleep deprived? Because you don't, there is no way you can work that amount of hours and you're not getting sleep. And George Ryan yells at me all the time for not sleeping enough, but your decision-making process suffers and how you how you handle calls emotionally suffers, um, how you perceive things suffers. And you're not picking up on those those pre-attack indicators. If I'm well rested and I've been a cop for a while and I'm talking to you, I'm picking up on I'm, my six senses on high alert. Like I'm picking up on verbal, nonverbal cues when I'm sizing up, whether it's going to be use of force stuff ahead of time. When you're not sleeping, you're missing those things and your tactics are lax. So one thing that we don't talk enough about with the use of force stuff is the sleep deprivation. A well-rested cop makes better decisions. He responds faster. He, he, he's going to make better decisions over the long haul. And, uh, and the cop that's coming in working overnights and details and overtime, and he's, he's going to be slow to pick up on threats and his decision-making process suffers. And I, I know I'm going to get people mad at me, but it's true. We got to get a handle on it. And it's uh, if you had to, if, if you told me in like one and 15 seconds, improve officer wellness, it would be the same things you would say. I would say sleep, hydrate, change your socks, eat a decent diet, you know, and, and, and I don't meditate cause I have ADD, but I know meditation is a big thing. Like 
there's some things we can do to make us way more healthy. And that overall healthness, that overall wellness assists in decision-making. It assists in officer safety. It assists actually in your use of force decision-making, I think. Well, another area that I think is also the elephant in the room is mental health. I mean, I've had so many people from the sleep medicine world, neuroscientists, etc., that are like, yeah, this when you process traumas, when you process your thoughts, when your brain literally takes a physiological bath when you sleep on top of um, processing skills. So you do a whole bunch of training at the range. If you don't sleep, you don't really get to benefit from that. So in our professions, it seems like both of us the, the the acknowledged suicides have basically doubled our line of duty death rates. What have you seen through a mental health lens in thirty plus years of, of the in law enforcement, and what are what are some of the solutions that you think we should be bringing? So it's definitely it's definitely changed a lot. I mean, when I got on the police department, there was no talk of you would never reach out for help. I mean, I I went I, I was involved in that. Um, that active shooter in Wakefield. And I think I went to work that night. You know, there was no decompression time. If you ever said like, Hey, <clears throat> I need time off or I'm going to go talk to the department shrink. They'd be putting rubber guns in your locker and all kinds of shit like that. <laughs> right, wrong, and different, you know, police and cops humor is pretty, pretty bad, but it's a, it's a coping mechanism. I'm good with it, but, um, but it's changed. We definitely got, uh, I think we have a better handle on it, but you know, part of the reason I teach like is I could retire and I could sit home in bunny slippers and get paid right now. And people are like, you're retired. Why don't you just retire? Why are you still here? And I'm like, well, I still think we got some work to do. And that's which is why I'm still here. But and why I teach the way I do is I've had two of my good friends murdered on this job. Two kids I train. One is Ronnie Tarantino's birthday. So actually, today would have been 50. Um, but 13 of my friends on this job have committed suicide. So, like, that's all the, use, all the officer survival training we do. And we take it so serious. I've lost two, but I've had 13 officers take their own life. So I take it super serious and, and we've gotten better at it. We added, there's a company called Prevenance. I'm, I'm not trying to, I don't know if I can mention the companies, but there's a company called Prevenance out of Utah that I work with now. And they, they do a lot at the Pentagon and uh, it's P-R-E-V-I-D-E-N-C-E, but they do a lot with police, fire and military. And I brought them in. They, so they do assessments. So I brought them into the SWAT team. And again, the unions are strong up here. So when you start to bring in that type of stuff, um, it, people get nervous, like, well, what's the end game? And I'm like, listen, we just need to take better care of our officers. So we, they do assessments. So we take these tests every four months and they, you're either in the green, the yellow, red, and then they offer services. And it's a great, great, great program. We got a pilot program offered in Massachusetts. The state offered to pay it. And I figured same thing, trying to hold SWAT to a higher standard. I said, listen, if the SWAT team is willing to do it, I would love every police department to, to take better care of their officers. So there's a lot of other good programs out there. But we have to um, we have to continue to grow in this area. I think it's I think it's growing a lot, but um, I'm tired of seeing cops take their life. I really am, and it's uh, you know it's more it's more out front now. But we have to find programs and not just right now. We're still doing a little bit of check the boxes. Like, well, we went over this at training. We did the PowerPoint, but we need programs in place like where your officers are getting checked on and where they're not worried about losing their gun or their job because cops don't go for help because it's a sign of weakness. And they're all inherently worried they're going to take off the SWAT team. They're going to take off the street. They can't pay their bill. So we got to make it. Um, I always look at it like, like we've all had injuries before. So I tore my tricep right off the bone, broke my elbow, just a freak injury. But I had to go to rehab for a year. So we rehab our injuries like a motherfucker when you tear your shoulder or your knee. 
but it's a brain injury. It's an injury. The stuff, the trauma that we see, James, it's an injury to our brain and we don't even address it. So we rehab a, a, a torn tricep for a year. But meanwhile, you see trauma every day and we don't do anything to, to, to fix that brain injury. And there's ways around it. There's all kinds of cool stuff out there that I've, I've, we've looked at that we like, but we just have to make it more a part of the job and not less such a thing, you know? Yeah, no, I think the brain injury is a perfect um, description of it. And it's something that I've talked about. When a healthy mind analyzes the behavior of someone who's suicidal, they're like, what's wrong with them? Why can't they just, you know, get over it and snap out of it? Well, it, it would be the same as you jacked up your hip and over time your foot has turned more and more out. And someone who's got perfect posture is like, why can't you fucking walk properly? What's wrong with you? Well, you don't even notice it because it's happened, you know, incrementally. But now our men and women, their brain is so miswired, the biochemistry is so off that their reality doesn't match, you know, a healthy reality. So they believe that they're a burden to their infant, like two law enforcements did in, in Florida here. I think it was last year. And, you know, both of them within seven days are taking their lives, leaving, leaving a, you know, a young, young child. Makes no sense to a healthy mind. But those two people with their unaddressed trauma and the things that they saw in uniform and organizational betrayal and, you know, whatever else was factoring into that personal st uh, uh, perfect storm, at that moment, their brains are convinced them that the world will be better off without them. And if we're not viewing our people in crisis with the same kindness and compassion that you've talked about viewing people that you're trying to arrest, our own brothers and sisters in uniform, and we're talking about suicide as cowardly and selfish we're never going to get through this. We've got to understand that these people, are their reality has been completely distorted and we've got to reach out our arm and pull them back to where they can see with a calm mind again and, and you know, pull them from that void because, you know, it's all very well saying, think of your kids. Well, they fucking are. And this is the problem. They believe that their kids are better off without them. Yeah, 100% right. It's It's... If you've been in that dark place before, right? Like you, you get it. Like, and then the one of the biggest thing that irks me is I always hear, "Well, that's selfish," and it goes, it hits every nerve on me. And I'm like, "You're just saying that," and I try not to get mad. I'm like, "You're just uninformed because you haven't been in that place where you just, you know, you just want the pain to stop. You want to feel better, and you you convince yourself that your kids are. You, you think that you are thinking of everybody. Like everybody's better off without me. The kids are better off without me. Like." It's a it's a better way, and it's not that you let, want your life to, to end. You just want the the pain to end, and want the bullshit to end. So you get in these spots. So when people say like, "Oh Jesus Christ, it's so selfish," I'm like, "Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad that you don't know what it means, but that's not really what it is. It's not a selfish act at all whatsoever. It's actually just the opposite sometimes." Yeah. Well, I mean, what kind of hit me not too long ago? I think it was something that someone said on one of the interviews. We're in professions where we already signed on the line saying we would give up our lives for a stranger. So you get to that crisis. I mean, it must be terrifying for these people that actually went through with their own suicide. But it was a selfless act at that point in their reality. And that's what we've got to understand. You've got someone who's already riddled with guilt and shame, and you're going to call them cowardly and, and all these things. No, we need to, we need to have the compa compassion and kindness to pull them back from that crisis and then get them back to where they can think you know, clearly and go, holy shit, I literally almost freaking swallowed a bullet, you know, and then some of these amazing men and women become advocates for it and they tell their stories and that helps even more people. Right, exactly. No, I agree. That's uh, like you say, put, putting it to the forefront and talking about it more, making it more, 
making it more normalized, I think is kind of the key to it. And I think, I think we're better at it. I just think we, I think we're still scratching the surface. I think we have to just continue to take care of our officers and make them understand that it's just, it's just tightening up your screws. It's just helping you get your mind right so that you can continue on with this profession that, that you love to do. Well, we have covered a host of topics from you know, use of force to hiring and all kinds of areas. Just before we do the wrap-up questions, if you could be king for a day and change anything or everything about law enforcement, the support from their cities and counties, etc., what would you do to try and help that pendulum swing back to the way it's supposed to be going? Oh, boy. All right. Um, I can't believe we covered two hours. That was uh, pretty fast. I didn't think we were going to get there. Um, yeah, you know, I still think that this is – I think this is – still is the greatest job in the world. I think the two best jobs in the world, police and firefighters, I really do. And I think that to get everything back on track, I do believe in the community stuff, but I think we have to hold people accountable. I think we have to make the job sought after again. Uh, from a police perspective, from, from my brothers and sisters in this profession, we got to stop telling everybody the job sucks and it's so hard and it's difficult because it doesn't suck. And we've been hearing this. It's, cops just say that all the time. I heard it from the Vietnam vets. Oh, the job used to be better, kid, back in the day. So we reap what we sow. So we can't, we can't keep telling everybody how hard the job is, how bad the job is, and then bitch and complain when nobody wants to take the job. Because you just told everybody how the bad the job sucks. So the world needs good cops. We need to go out there and recruit people. And the city has to get on board. And the, the community stuff, we have to get out there and educate the public and and educate rather than do this confrontational us versus them. We have to just educate the public because sometimes the public just doesn't know that this is force options. And this is when you can use force and show them the law and give them some of these scenarios so that we can get in, into this together. You know, when, when people come up and, you know, I ask you, and I, I stole this from, you know, George Rand, some of the guys in LA, when, when you are at work and somebody comes up and they ask you, Hey, what's going on? And I've done it. Instead of giving them some smart ass answer, like, Oh, you know, shock attack or, don't worry about this. Take five seconds and say, hey, yeah, sorry, we blocking traffic, but we have a mental health uh, issue up the street. Sorry to kick you out of your house right now. And, you know, do us take a picture with the kid and high five, like maybe just get into this, do a better job of this community based policing as a whole and not this confrontational stuff. I think the pendulum swinging back a little bit, but I think that I think that most people support the police. And I think that cops have to know that the courts support the police. Um the public supports the police. The silent majority is just the silent majority is the problem is the minority is usually the loudest, but the majority of people respect you and respect what you do. And just, I think we're in this together and we just hold cops to a high standard, stop lowering the standards, make it more difficult to get this job. And you get there, you know, people should want to train. People should want this job. Like you want the guy going down and take the test is like, this is a job I always wanted. And that's, that's kind of how we do it. Not just, you know, at, the job has good benefits, you know? Well, just to kind of tie in what we talked about earlier with the ESPN, people screaming at each other. One thing that I've said a lot, and Fox and CNN are two examples, opposite sides of the spectrum, same exact bullshit, in my opinion. The screen divided into four. Four assholes arguing and calling themselves news. There's no fucking news on there whatsoever. What has been the the impact of the way media has portrayed law enforcement, whether blindly support everyone or the anti-police um, message? Again, now here we are 35 years later from when you felt supported. What has kind of been the ripple effect of some of that negative um, reporting through your eyes? 
So there's, there's some good reporters out there for sure. But I think that we have to, uh, and I think, again, we've gotten a little bit better at it recently. We need to kind of take back our own narrative. So I think we have to have build relationships with the media. Maybe, you know, you're always going to have the people that are going to be anti-police, but there's a lot of pro-media, pro-cop media people in the media as well. But educate them, but also get into the point where we're controlling the narrative and not just, you know, we'll get back to you or we'll, you know, we're not releasing that information at this time. Um, I find that the media wants, they want um, accountability from the police and they want transparency. And I think citizens want that as well. So I think we say people in the media want transparency and accountability from the police. So we give it to them. You know, we, we if we can release body camera footage and explain the story instead of saying, well, you don't understand that job. This is what we did. This is why we did it. This is what the officers were faced with. I think we kind of get out there with the media and give them the story because I think we both know if, if you don't if you don't give them a story, they'll create the story. So we just have to be, you know, hold our officers accountable and be transparent with what we can. I am a fan of body cameras, believe it or not. They're not big up here in the Northeast. Um, but I think body cameras is a is a good start. It, it shows what we do. It shows what we deal with. I think it holds officers accountable. I think it holds citizens accountable. And I think it clears up a lot of the misconceptions that are out there. So, I'll, again, I'll probably have some people mad at me for the body cameras. But I like body cameras as well. It really does. Transparency and accountability, it helps with. Absolutely. Yeah, it can, it can, can help if you're doing everything right. And obviously, it can hurt if you're not. Right. The bad use of force is still bad. If it's bad, it's bad, you know? Absolutely. Well, I've just got a few closing questions to throw at you if you've got time. I know we've been chatting for two hours. Sure. Now. Okay. So the first one, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. So I, it's an old book. I think Ken Murray, Training at the Speed of Light. It's an old book and it's pretty pricey. It might be hard to find, but it gets into a lot of training and a lot of stuff I learned at Force Science, you know, doing less more instead of doing something for eight hours a day every year, do it for 18 minutes a day. So that the 100 rule, the 100 hour rule, you know, do something for 18 minutes a day and that will make you um, expert level and more proficient than 95% of the people just so I'm a big fan of doing more or less. So I stole that from um, training the speed of light is good. Um, let's see what else. I like from a perspective point of view, the, the burning shield, I think it's called. It was a, I forget the officer's name. He just was in mass last week, but he's a. Jason Schechterly. Yes. I think every cop and firefighter should read that book because that guy has a unbelievable perspective on life. And, you know, life is 10% what happens here and 90% what you make of it. I think, I think he should address every police and firefighter in the country. I, I think the guy's riveting it's, not really related to what we have today, but he has a really good perspective on life. I think it's really cool. Yeah, I had Jason on um, oh, a long time ago now, probably about four years ago. And then we met about a year later when he came to Orlando for a speaking event. And just a, just a humble, down-to-earth, incredible human being. Yeah, excellent. He doesn't think this. He, I mean, he, all he wanted to do is get back to work being a cop, man. And, he's, and he holds himself accountable for everything. But yeah, he's a good man. He certainly is. Well, what about um, a film and or a documentary that you love? Oh, let's see. I definitely like the Manhunt one because I thought it was really good. It showed a lot of the, it was honest, get down in the weeds. It didn't show all peace and love and the cops were getting along great with the feds and everything was pretty raw and pretty good. And um, 
it kind of spins it kind of spins a narrative of how it went down. It was kind of, we talked about how the pendulum swings sometimes in an eight hour shift. And we were, you know, we were involved in the Watertown incident and we were clearing houses after houses and the people were great. Like we would, we would give the people options. We'd be like, listen, if you're comfortable, go down in your basement, um, secure, we'll, we'll button up your house. Uh, or if you want to search it, we'll search it. But that's up to you if you're comfortable. And we're like, we're not looking for drugs. We don't care if you have a kilo of cocaine on the table. We're just here for looking for bad guys, right? And people are like, most people are like, I think I'm okay. Can you just check the outside of the house? But a lot of people are like, can you come in? I heard the dog barking. Or I think I heard a noise in my basement. So we would pull the people out and we would search the house. So when that ended, that was one of my proudest moments in law enforcement. People were coming out and singing God Bless America and high-fiving the police. And I left. And I literally woke up in the morning to the news talking about how it was Gestapo tactics and we shut the city down and we were pulling people out of the house at gunpoint. I'm like, Oh no, I'm like, that's not even close to happen. I'm like, it changed. And I've seen it change, but not like that. I go, this changed in, in six hours. You know what I mean? It was, it was just crazy. So, but I, I think that's, that's a good, honest um, documentary. I liked um, the Pat Tillman story is always my favorite. I'm a huge Pat Tillman story guy. Speaking of of the that shift, just for a second, did you ever find out why that narrative changed within eight hours? Like, was there a politician or someone behind that? Um, I think there was some unethical reporting probably done. I think they were probably searching for people to say stuff. I think because the people I saw were crying, singing "God Bless America," and I have no reason to lie. I was there, and I think they probably, if you go interview ten people, and nine of them say. It was an amazing moment to see the community and, and and police and public safety and fire work together. And then one guy says, I was ripped out at gunpoint and they searched my house or shot up my house. The sexy story is the guy that says he was ripped out at gunpoint. So I think there was maybe some unethical reporting. I think that probably was behind it. That submarine that was uh, basically touring around the Titanic that they lost. And now as we record this, sadly, they're probably dead because the air supply has run out. I, I wasn't following it, but two stories kind of came up on my, you know, my newsfeed. One was that the stepson of one of the guys had gone to a concert and how outraged people were. And the other one was that one of the people in the submarines was a distant relative of the Titanic. Both of those are complete bullshit and not a story at all. But that illustrates how people will scramble for anything just so they can sell their little clickbait article and get their advertising space money. Yeah, anything, anything they can make a, a story. That's why I say it all the time. It's like the, I use the analogy when I teach use of force to c- civilians. I'm like, it's like Logan Airport, Miami Airport. Like, there's literally going to be thousands of planes that take off, and you're not going to hear about them because there's no story. And then you're going to hear about the plane crash, or that there's literally thousands of cops, you know, de escalating situations that doesn't even go to paper every day and, and using that, you know, using that um, force mitigation stuff. But then we get a train wreck in Minneapolis or, or somewhere else. And next thing you know, that's the narrative. But next thing you know, all the good police work gets to the wayside. It's the same thing. It's like it's like the plane crash that landed. Now we have a story. So now, OK, that becomes a story. So that's kind of what the reporting goes. They're looking for the, the sexy story. And that's if, if you go to work or I go to work today and, you know, I have some guy with a knife to his neck and I talk him into handcuffs. He goes and gets the help he needs. There's nothing really sexy about that story but it's something that we do literally every day yeah exactly those are the stories we should be hearing i try and share as many of the positive you know 
uniform stories as I can because as you said that's what happens every day but it doesn't make it on on you know the the mainstream media because it's not going to make someone angry or divided yes you, you posted a three-minute video on uh Facebook on a, a firefighter take a knee and I, I shared that everywhere all the guys I work with I'm like this is a, the cops won't watch it if it's like 10 minutes but I'm like this is a three-minute video that's worth sharing you know what I mean like that is even as a civilian you could read you could watch this guy's take on mental wellness for firefighters and and you would get it you know in three minutes you know absolutely yeah that was steve farina amazing um, firefighter from canada that was excellent so well speaking of amazing people is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world you probably already had the guys i like on there so you've probably had george ryan uh mike odell has always been from lapd he, I don't know if he'd do it. He's out in Arizona, but he's always been a mentor to me. He's a he's a true Captain America. He's probably the best cop I ever met. Um, he's out in Arizona. He's retired now, but he had a really storied career, and he he taught me a lot about being professional and stuff. And you'll never hear him say anything negative. Just a positive guy. But he uh, he trained he trained a lot of cops. And when I, I met him early on in my career. And I, I with my job, I've been lucky enough. I've, I've shooken hands with six U.S. presidents and. The Dalai Lama twice. And the only time I was ever peed my pants like a school child was when I met Daryl Gates from LAPD. He's the epitome of a chief of police. And I met Daryl Gates one year and Mike Godel, who was uh, in charge of their SWAT team. And he's, he's lights out. He's as good as anybody. But George will probably get you. I give you his number and George will probably get in touch with him. He's pretty good. He's the epitome of professionalism, I think. Beautiful. We'll make it happen then. Thank you so much. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and reach out. What do you do to decompress? So I've done uh, I've done the good escapes and the bad escapes. I'll be totally honest with you. So the younger version of me, uh, I did all the stupid stuff back in the day and uh, unhealthy escapes and live fast and adrenaline dump. But, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, I'm, I, I go to the gym religiously every day. Like I, I um, even if it's seven days a week, even if I split up cardio or, or, or lifting weights, even when I, I tore my arm off. I went every single day to get through it. And I just think that, you know, hydrating, sleeping and going to the gym is my positive escape. So I, I know I need an outlet all the time. I just kind of realize that um, my brain is going to be everywhere and I won't slow down. And, and the gym is the only time gym. And believe it or not, I read the paper like an old person. Everybody makes fun of me, but <laughs> I read the new, I read the newspaper every day. Everybody makes fun of me because it's the only time my brain clicks off for like, like a half an hour. Otherwise, my brain is everywhere. But for me, it's just the physical stuff um, is really what gets me through everything. I kind of got away from running around till all hours of the night and all the stupid stuff you used to do. Which paper do you trust to read? So, you know, the Herald, the Boston Herald is okay. Uh, a couple of the other papers are rough. I try to stay away from the anti-police ones, but um, I just want to read the news. I'm old school. I want to hear, Wal- I want to hear Walter Cronkite give the news. Like I want to hear somebody just give me the news. I want to see ESPN. Just give me the news. I don't want your take. I don't care. I don't, don't give me your narrative. I just want to hear the news. I want to read the news. I want to hear the news and let me make my own decision. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure people listening are, you know, extremely interested in learning more about you, maybe trying to get you to their agency or learn about some of the courses that you talk about. Where is the best place to find you online or connect with you on social media? Uh, let's see. I'm on, I'm on Facebook. It's just, but it's under Charlie Butterfuco. I had to change my name because 
just some, uh, some 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 negativity came out. I did a couple high profile cases, use of force cases, and then I didn't care so much. But my daughter gets upset and she was crying and stuff. So I, I'm under Charlie Butterfuco, like the old Joey Butterfuco. So that's under Facebook, and then um, Dechara Consulting, uh, Dechara Consulting at gmail.com brilliant well chuck i want to say thank you so much um you know george was was raving about you and i obviously know why but to get someone with your career and the the areas that you've become an expert in to give a middle of the road conversation or or a kind of perspective on and you know this kindness and compassion element brought into policing i think it's been an amazing conversation so i just want to thank you so much for being so generous we've been chatting for over two hours now and coming on the behind the shield podcast no i appreciate it. i follow the podcast and i follow some of the guests you had and i'm i'm humbled extremely and i'm i, I appreciate the privilege to come on and uh you taking the time to let me talk about uh, what a great profession, what a great job we have here.